This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 77. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton, and on this episode of the podcast, we have special guest Morgana Santilli, uh, who is the former manga buyer and general manager for uh, comic book store uh, Comicopia in Boston, Massachusetts. Emphasis on former, because uh, at the time we had uh, recorded this episode of the podcast, uh, she had still worked at Comicopia, but uh, since then has sort of moved on to other things, so now she is the former manga buyer. Uh, But, you know, that doesn't really mean much for this episode, uh, other than, you know, just to kind of give you an idea of when we recorded this. We recorded this back in January, and uh, unfortunately we were only able to now kind of release this, what with uh, uh, all the other... Uh, topics and discussions we wanted to record about on the show and whatnot. Uh, Scheduling is a huge pain in the ass, is basically the long and short of that. Um, But it doesn't matter uh, because uh, you're going to get to listen to that in just a moment. Uh, We had Morgana on uh, to not only talk about Princess Jellyfish from Akiko Igashimura, uh, but we also kind of had her on to sort of talk about what it's like to uh, purchase manga for a comic book shop and just kind of, you know, what it's like to work in a comic book shop just kind of in general and uh, and whatnot. I think we had a lot of uh, really interesting discussion just about that and like uh, shoujo and jose manga in general and, and whatnot. Um, I don't think I talked much during that portion of the show, but uh, I still thought it was a really interesting discussion to listen to, at least. Um, and I just want to personally thank uh, Morgana for coming on the show. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking with her, and I hope we can have her on again in the future uh, for maybe some more uh, Higashimura manga. And, uh, oh, I guess just uh, one more note about the recording coming up. Um, around the 2 hour and 13 second mark or so, uh, some somewhere around there, Lum's microphone... Uh, just sort of stopped recording and uh, he kind of had to start up another recording. Uh, But because of that, you know, uh, part of our conversation is sort of gone. Not, not a ton of it, but like uh, there's going to be a noticeable point in the episode where uh, we just kind of go from one topic to another without any transition. And uh, yeah. So if you're wondering why the topic of conversation kind of, changes so abruptly without any kind of transition at all uh that that's basically why um i'm i'm only telling you this because i couldn't come up with a creative way to kind of like get around that unfortunately but uh yeah i i I just thought i'd be transparent about that uh just to kind of let you guys know what was up with that i just kind of feel weird not saying anything about that because i'm sure uh that might confuse some people so i just thought i'd let you know but uh, speaking of shoujo and jose manga, uh, I guess just a little uh, house cleaning here before we uh, kind of move on. Uh, at the end of the episode, Lum and I are going to be revealing the results of our straw poll that we kind of had on Twitter. Uh, because in case you did not listen to our survey results episode, you know, we had a category in our survey for the podcast uh, where people could vote for... Uh, what shoujo or jose manga they want us to cover on the show. Uh, in case you haven't been keeping track, uh, our first place winners were uh, Banana Fish and Chihayafuru. Uh, as far as third place goes, uh, we had a six-way tie uh, between Descending Stories, Yona of the Dawn, 
Tokyo Tarareba Girls, Kimini Todoke, Revolutionary Girl Utena, and Natsume's Book of Friends. So, yeah, uh, we decided to go to Twitter to kind of, you know, help us figure out uh, which of those six you, the listener, would want us to uh, talk about. And uh, again, we have the results of that poll, uh, but we're going to save those for the end of the show. Kind of build them a little suspense. Um, In other words, uh, give you guys a reason to listen to the end of the show. Wink. Um, And I guess just one last thing. Uh, We will not be covering news on this episode, as you may have guessed uh, from maybe looking at the post on All Comic or just the description for the podcast. Uh, Hopefully we will cover news on the next episode. Um, You know, we kind of talked back and forth about adding news to this episode, but uh, we kind of figured that this episode already is kind of running long enough, so... We're going to see if we can maybe put it on to the next episode, maybe the episode after that. Uh, you know, um, we, we do have a lot of news we do want to catch up on and a lot of stuff uh, that has come out recently that we really do want to talk about. So um, we will be talking about those news pieces soon, I promise. Um, but for now, uh, I think we should just head on into the crux of the episode. So I hope you enjoy our discussion with Morgana. Again, I really want to thank her for coming on. And I also hope you guys enjoy our discussion of Akiko Higashimura's Princess Jellyfish. Don your armor, put on your most comfortable clothes, and sit down in a cozy care with some snazzy headphones jacked into your phone, dreaming of becoming a beautiful princess. Because today, we're finally going to talk about Princess Jellyfish by Akiko Higashimura. And joining us today is a very special guest, Morgana Santili, manga buyer and manager at the Comicopia Comic Shop in Boston. Welcome, Morgana. Hello, thank you for having me. We're very excited to have you and talk about Princess Jellyfish with you. I'm excited too. I've been loving uh, all of Akiko Higashimura's stuff, and and Princess Jellyfish is just excellent. Mm hmm. Same. Akiko Higashimura is one of my favorite mangaka as well, and Princess Jellyfish is one of my favorite manga. But before we get into our discussion of Princess Jellyfish, since we usually love to discuss with our guests, like how they got into. manga and especially our industry guests like a little bit about their work we wanted to ask you a few questions about what it's like to be the manga buyer manager at comicopia all right so our first question starting off is how did you get into anime and manga and what led you to start working at a comics retailer all right well um I uh, was one of those lucky people who was a young person during the manga boom. So um, my first exposure to anime uh, was back in 1995. I was in kindergarten um, and Sailor Moon was airing on television for the first time in the United States. Uh, So that was kind of my gateway to this whole industry was just um, my dad had heard about it and was like, oh, I think you'd be really into this you know, show about these girls who do cool things. And I would, uh, every day after school, come, come home and plunk down and watch Sailor Moon. And, uh, my dad would record it on blank tapes for me, um, on the VCR because it was ancient times when we used VCRs. (laughs) 
Um, What's a VCR? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I feel real old. Um, (laughs) And I know I'm not the oldest person in this uh, in this industry, certainly, or or certainly not the oldest fan. But um, I I was talking about 90s Sailor Moon on Twitter the other day. And one of my followers was like, Oh, I've I've never seen that. That's way before my time. And I was like, Oh, you're kidding! Wow, <laughs> I'm not that old. That hurts. That hurts my soul. Yeah, yeah. I'll be 29 this year. I didn't think that that was old. <laughs> I mean, it floors me that there are apparently kids who watch Boruto that have never seen Naruto. Yeah, no, that's weird too. That's very weird. Yeah, but yeah, so really so Sailor Moon was my first uh, anime, and then a few years later, um, Tokyo Pop, which was actually mix entertainment at the time i think they published the sailor moon manga and so that was my first comic book that was just mine and my dad uh was into comics when i was a kid so i had always been around them and i loved reading like comics you know in the newspaper and stuff like that so it was always kind of part of my life and i and i read manga all through high school you know middle school and high school again it was the manga boom of the aughts so there was a lot of choice and a lot of options for me at the time Although there are a lot more now. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and what led to me being a comics retailer was kind of just chance. I went to school in Western Mass and a bunch of my friends had moved to Boston and, and my husband and I decided that we were going to move to Boston as well. And I didn't have a job. Neither one of us had a job, but he found one first. And I was still looking and looking. And a friend of mine who has a lot of contacts um, in comics was like, hey, Comicopia is hiring. They could definitely use somebody who has some manga knowledge. And at the time, I had written for Amazing Stories magazine for a year. And I had done a couple pieces for the Mary Sue on manga. And I kind of just was like, all right, let's go down this path. Um, It was not something I studied or anything in college. Uh, I studied art and circus and mask making, <laughs> um, which is a whole different story. I feel like I've led a lot of lives. Um, but yeah, so I applied for Comicopia and uh, they they hired me and that was three and a half years ago. And I've been there ever since. Excellent. Did what you learn in art school help you in working in a comic shop in any way? Yeah. Um, so I, I basically, I didn't really go to art school. I went to Hampshire College, which is a school that has no set majors. You kind of make your own um, course of study. And my advisor, um, who's a sculptor, also did some sequential imagery courses. And I TA'd for him in my final year at Hampshire. My final project at Hampshire is actually a circus show. So again, like I've done a lot of different things. But I do think that that taking those art classes and, and sculpture classes and also just sequential imagery courses um, definitely made me look at comics differently. It's it's helped my writing a lot, I think, um, thinking about panel layouts, page layouts. I feel like I can be critical of comics better than before. It's not just, oh, do I like this or do I not like this? It's more like, okay, I can see what qualities are good about this and what qualities are less good about this and I can be more um, even-handed as opposed to just reacting on my impressions. So that I think was definitely helpful. I'm the kind of person who thinks that every experience helps with the next experience. You know, you can kind of take a lot of things from all aspects of life and apply them to the next thing. So so definitely, I do definitely think that having that background helps. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It, you can build up a lot of unique skills by having different experiences. Yeah. And I really enjoy your writing because of how you can look at comics from other angles because you have such a foundation in art and in the language of art and sequential imagery. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I, uh, I definitely, again, I try to be really um, holistic when, I, when I'm reviewing things. I also think it's really cool that your dad actually introduced you to Sailor Moon and encouraged your love for it. Because I'm sure, like, I speak for a lot of people whose parents were, like, not very supportive of us watching anime or reading manga. Like, my dad was trying to wean me off cartoons at the age of seven and telling me to watch, quote unquote, real shows. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. I think it was really cool that you had someone who could get you into anime and manga and comics. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and, you know, part was that my dad was already interested um, in comics and knew a little bit about anime although not much um and he my my parents actually ended up getting divorced when I was very young and I and I grew up with my mother mostly but he definitely started that kind of interest but um I think also it was just a matter of time and place because soon after you know Pokemon came over and Dragon Ball Z came over and it was just like you couldn't really avoid it and I had friends who were into it as well and I should say, I you know, I, I give my dad that credit, but my mother, even though she was never really invested in the hobby itself, was always very supportive of me. And like when I started drawing, she was like, oh, it's great. Let's go get you supplies and, you know, let's get you more books. And she was always happy to like help. So, yeah, I, I definitely think I benefited from uh, having parents who were very open to my hobbies. And I it kills me any time I see and it does happen sometimes. Um you know, parents come in with their kids to the store and you can tell that the parents just don't get at all what their kid is into and they don't really care. There are parents who, you know, don't really get it, but are like, hey, if you like this thing, that's great. And I um, I really think that it's important, even if you can't be invested in whatever your kids are into, um, just kind of appreciate that that's something that they really care about. And again, I was very lucky that I did have supportive parents in that way. Definitely. It's great to have parents or parental figures to like support and encourage you to love what you love. Yeah, my my parents are definitely in that category of like, oh, wait, yeah, my my son is into that anime thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like if if my parents saw like a how to draw anime book at like a Borders or something that like they'd pick it up for me and I'd just be like, um, okay, I, I guess I don't know what to do with this now. <laughs> but they but they know, you know, they know and they care, and that's nice too. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. basically. So now to talk about your job as the manga buyer and manager at Comicopia, what are your general duties? I know you've written a blog post called What It Means to Magic Comic Shop, where you go into this in very good detail. But to summarize it for the pod, our podcast listenership, what are your general duties as a manga buyer manager? Sure, yeah. So a lot of them are um, just basic managerial duties that you that any retail establishment has. Um, I coordinate my employees to some degree, although there are only four of us total, my boss and three employees. So um, there's not a whole lot of coordinating. Um so there's that aspect of it. There's definitely organizing events, um, getting in contact with uh, representatives at publishers or with individuals who are trying to sell consignment, um, making decisions about things that, you know, sometimes I wouldn't even think that I would have to make a decision about, like, do we want to advertise in this way? Or, um, you know, recently we had somebody ask us if uh, they could, like, film in our store. And that's something that I will often decide. And, you know, it depends on various factors, you know, who's going to be there and are we going to be busy at that time and et cetera. So those kinds of general duties. Um, and then with the manga buying, that's something I kind of took on 
just to keep our manga section curated to a certain degree. I um, We've always had a, a big manga collection, even before I started working at the store. We are kind of known for being the comic shop that has a decent manga selection. Um, but there are a bunch of shops in the Boston area, and they're all great, and they all do something different, and that's our that's what we do. So I kind of wanted to take charge of that and figure out how we could best curate that and make sure that we were selling, you know, we were stocking things that we could sell and that people could find the things that they were looking for. So yeah, it's it's a lot of looking at past sales data for some things or, you know, like if I'm ordering the next volume in a series, I'll look at sales of past volumes of that series. Um, but if I'm ordering something brand new, I have to kind of look at things that are similar to it. And some of that is just intuition. And sometimes there is nothing else that we've had like it. And I need to decide, okay, is this something I've heard of before? If this Is this something that people are on the internet are talking about? Is this a license that uh, people were excited to hear about getting bought by a North American company? So it's a lot of um, intuition, <laughs> a lot of uh, guesswork. Some of it is is just knowing things about manga and knowing like, who is a big name creator or what is a big name series. And some of it is like, okay, can I sell this to people who like Naruto? You know, can I sell this to people who like Spider-Man? You know, like, can I make that crossover sale as well? Yeah, I have to imagine you have to really know your customer base when figuring out what new titles to buy, because sometimes a title that might be popular on social media might not be as popular in your local community. Yeah, and I and I learned the hard way that stuff that I'm excited about is not necessarily the stuff that our customers are excited about. <laughs> Sometimes it is, but I tend to like um, I tend to like a lot of old stuff, a lot of weird stuff uh, that doesn't always really gel with our customers. Not because they have bad taste, just that you know what I like is so I don't want to sound like I'm bragging that my tastes are so niche, but like <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it's really hard for me to sell like occult detective series with beautiful men in them because that's something I really like. <laughs> but like that's not, you know, that's not really in right now. Not that there are many of those currently uh in print, but uh, you know, something like that where I you know, I've had to make some hard decisions. I've had to liquidate series that I really love, which is really hard. Tomoko Hayakawa's The Wallflower is one of my favorite series and it's long, it's long, and nobody was buying it. And at some point uh we just I actually ended up buying the copies that we had in the store <laughs> i was like i'll just take them they're mine now <laughs> um because you know it just wasn't it was it's a little old at this point it was from the mid 2000s um and that's not what people are looking for so you know I, it's heartbreaking but i definitely have to think kind of in terms of all right how do we make money um so some of it's for the love of manga and some of it is for you know cold hard capitalism unfortunately <laughs> Definitely. I remember reading one of your blog posts, how you mentioned that Moto Hagio's manga were not selling well at your store. No, definitely not. And it, it really feels like older titles that aren't like really relevant in the zeitgeist are a really hard sell. I'd be curious like to ask like, uh, I mean, our series like Devil Man, which came out last year, how did that fare for you? That's an older title. And you can definitely tell it's of its time. But because it was so popular, at least in the Twitter sphere of anime manga fandom, like, did that do well for your shop? Um, so that is a good question. Yeah. So Right before the Devil Man classic collection came out, the hardcover, there were a couple Devil Man spinoffs. Um, and those did okay. You know, they weren't like 
huge sellers, but we sold we sold some. Um, and then Devil Man came out, and it also did fairly well. Um, it sold a few copies, but it is a twenty five or thirty dollar hardcover. Yeah, and I suspect that a lot of people who are really into Devil Man like pre ordered it a long time ago. You know, we definitely had people coming into the store who were like, "Oh, I hear Devil Man's coming out," and I I watched Devil Man Crybaby, and man, it was crazy, and I really want to read Devil Man. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there were def- there was some response to that. Um, I was surprised. Uh, Seven Seas also put out Captain Harlock Classic Collection, and I did not think that would sell. Uh, I thought this is again, it's something I really like and I really care about, and I definitely am going to stock. But I did not think that it would sell, and uh, we sold out of it. Uh, we I only got a few copies for the first week it was available, and uh, we sold it. That's awesome. Wow. We sold out. I was really surprised. Um, and then I, you know, and we, it's not like a huge seller, but people do pick it up and look at it and buy it. And I think part of it is that it looks really nice. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the trade dress is really nice. Um, and another one we sold, we sell again, not in huge numbers, but pretty steadily is Queen Emeraldus, um, also by ah. Matsumoto. And I love that one and I push that one all the time. <laughs> um, but so every now and then it helps to like have things in the store that are kind of weird that you wouldn't necessarily see at like Barnes and Noble. Um, because then people come in and are like, I had no idea this existed. I want this. And even if they don't buy it right then and there, um, maybe they'll come back, you know, and they'll, and they'll, or they'll know at least that we try to, you know, carry as much as possible and have a, a varied selection. So yeah, some of the older stuff, it really depends on, on if people have heard about it or how it looks. Like I, have not really been able to sell Claudine, um, which Aww. Seven Seas also put out, which I love. Um, part of it is that I don't feel like I can recommend it in good conscience to um, trans customers because it is pretty tragic. I love it though, and I do I do tell people like here here's the deal. This is real sad, but it's beautiful, <laughs> and I love it. So yeah, it really it really depends, and and sometimes there's no uh, there's no real way of knowing until you get it in. Um, some things are a sure seller. Usually, like Junji Ito stuff, we can sell. It's it's easy. Like we, yeah, we'll, we'll order how many of our copies we want, and we'll sell them, and we'll keep. I mean, Uzumaki, the Uzumaki collection has been in print for years, and we still sell multiple copies a month. Like it's just they just wow. keep going and going. Yeah, because that's awesome. You know, yeah, it's a uh, universally appealing. I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm very happy that Junji Ito has had this huge resurgence in popularity in the last couple of years. Because it it felt like a decade ago, like his work was not as widely distributed or discussed in mainstream comics community. But now I think it's been really embraced. And I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I think part of that is just that there's, there's a lot more manga than ever before. And I think that more people are open to reading manga than were before, maybe. I know that like when I was a kid, Uzumaki wasn't was in print. It was in single volumes, and, and I never read it or Gyo because I thought it was too scary, right? And now it's like I can't get enough horror manga, and I can't get enough Junji Ito, especially. I love his work, so I think there's a there's a certain amount of aging up that manga readers have done, which has helped that a little bit. And I think that um, it is Junji Ito's stuff is something that I do see selling to people who don't read a ton of manga because they they've heard about him and they've heard that he's a really good horror creator. And I do think our store in particular has a lot of people who like horror comics. So mm-hmm. very cool. I also think publishers have been doing a great job of packaging classic manga 
in yeah. in terms of making really striking cover designs. Because I think those really catch people's eye and make them curious about it. And even if, like, in the interior art definitely shows its age, like, just a really good striking cover does a whole lot in catching people's attention. So I think Viz and Seventies have been doing a really good job with that with their classic titles. I agree. I definitely think that it's important to have a striking, not only a striking cover, but a spine that is very, like, well... You know, you, you can see it. It's, it's well designed and people are like, what is this? I have, you know, I've never heard of this. Um, so yeah. And, and there's, it's a remarkable number of people who have come in and don't, and haven't heard of Uzumaki, which I think is and people who like manga, you know, who do read manga, who've never heard of Uzumaki, which I always find is really interesting. A lot of people think it's Naruto. <laughs> I mean, it's easy to make that mistake, I guess. I, yeah, I'm like, no, 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 guys. <laughs> it's really, really not. Uh, the prequel to Naruto. Yeah. <laughs> the secret of how the Rasengan was made. The spiral. <laughs> I guess that's why his headband has that little spiral on it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lost history of Naruto. It's, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But yeah, I'm also really happy to hear that Leiji Matsumoto's works have been selling very well for you, because I'm a big fan of his as well. I'm looking forward to Space Battleship Yamato coming out later this year. Hopefully that does well very well too. Yeah, I think um, I think there definitely is an interest in nostalgia. I mean, and that's true in, in movies and in, in the West as well and in comics. There's definitely an interest in nostalgia. So all these um, older titles coming over makes a certain amount of sense. And I'm, yeah, I'm also really excited to see how Space Battleship Yamato does, <clears throat> excuse me, and how, um, I don't know, just, just, you know, to see who is buying these things, um, who's interested in these things. Because uh, it's not, it's usually older folks, it's usually adults that I see buying them, but uh, I would be very curious to see, um, because they're also, they've released, they, they've released adaptations of uh, Devilman, there, there's Devilman G, or Devilman Grimoire, and Devilman vs. Hades. Um, and then there's also Captain Harlock Dimensional Voyage. And I, it looks like they released those to kind of ease people into this, uh, to the idea of these properties, um, because they're more modern artwork. And so I'm wondering if that's an attempt to appeal to a younger audience and then hopefully sell, you know, the, the classics down the line. Um, or it was a matter of this is what they got with the license, which is also possible. Perhaps. But either way, I'm glad that we have more of these like classic franchises, more manga of them coming over yeah i agree but speaking of figuring out like what the audience for certain manga is and making recommendations you also uh make recommendations to fellow comics retailers about what manga they should purchase and so like how do you select or how do you make those recommendations uh and like has your monthly mailing list helped with making them to multiple retailers and people more easily so um, <clears throat> the way that this started was my store is part of this community called Comics Pro. It's like a professional group where you pay dues and whatnot to be in it. Um, and I know that uh, I went to a co- I've been to a couple Comics Pro meetings, um, and the sense there was that people really didn't know how to stock manga. They had done manga in the two thousands, and then the it, it burst. Right, it didn't. It, it dropped in sales and they kind of stopped selling it. Um, and then they didn't really know how to jump back on. And they, a lot of them own comic shops because they read comics as kids, but they didn't, ha- they didn't grow up with manga. So they don't have like the, the background in it. 
So I started giving recommendations in a closed Facebook group um, for Comics Pro, and then I branched out into a couple other professional groups I was in. Um, the Valkyries existed at the time, and I would, and that's um, no longer exists, but I would, you know, post the recommendations there as well. And then there was another private group of retailers. So I had like three different groups that I was basically copy pasting the same information into. And eventually I was like, I'm just going to do a newsletter. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, streamline the process a bit. Exactly. Because then there were people who were in all three groups who were getting this information three times. It's like, it's also kind of obnoxious. Um, so this was, this is, you know, an opt in system. And I do think that it helps. It's definitely helped me reach more people. I'm able to recommend things to librarians now as well, which I've heard has been mm. helpful for them. Um, and then I have like, you know, people who aren't retailers or um, librarians who just kind of want to be part of the newsletter and see what I recommend every month. So definitely, um, I definitely have a bigger audience uh, than I did. I definitely am reaching more people, even though those groups themselves had a lot of people, not everybody was using that information, which is fine. So it's more targeted now. And basically the way I go about recommending things, I, I look through, we get um, a catalog every month called Previews, and that's from our distributor, Diamond Comics Distributors. Um, and that basically says what's coming out in the next couple months. It's usually two to three months ahead of what's coming out. And so I'll look at it and decide, you know, what has really broad appeal Things like My Hero Academia, for example, which I talk about every single time, because you'd be amazed there were people who had not heard of this uh, when I was talking to retailers, people who didn't know about this. I was like, you guys, you're, you could be printing money. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> you should be selling My Hero Academia. Um, stuff like My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness, um, you know, things that have been kind of in the news. And I always, you know, I recommend everything with the caveat that, like, you need to know your customers and need to know what they're looking for. And so part of what I do is when I pick these manga series, I try to give a little bit of an explanation of the type of reader who might like this. So is it somebody who really likes, you know, mysteries or somebody who's really into romances or somebody who likes, again, Spider-Man? I use Spider-Man when I talk about My Hero Academia a lot because I feel like there's a similar customer base there, of, you know, kids who want a hopeful superhero story. Um mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of, and I try to compare to other comic series or other genres or, um, you know, and then again, with the caveat that you should stock what you know you can sell, of course. And I'm, and these retailers have been doing this for a long time. They're smart. They don't need me to tell them that. But I do feel like I have to say, like, just, don't just buy anything. Not everything is a guaranteed sale. You know, we stock Sailor Moon and it doesn't sell that much, but there are, I, there are other shops that I know sell it constantly. And for whatever reason, I, I suspect it's because everybody has already read it <laughs> yeah. um, around us. So, uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm adamant about stocking it. So, you know, and for us, our model is very different than most stores. Um, we try to stock not everything that's in print, but a good selection of everything that's in print. We really, I mean, I think I was looking the other day and we have something like 4,500 SKUs just for manga. So we really stock to the teeth. And not every store can do that. They can't dedicate the space or the time. I also recommend for other shops to, if they don't want to read the manga themselves, have somebody on staff who does. Because some of selling manga is hand-selling. I think it's easier to sell itself sometimes than, than other comics because you can see them all. They're displayed really nicely um, next to each other. Whereas comics and, and um, graphic novels sometimes get lost on the shelves. 
but there's definitely an amount of hand selling that I have to do. And so it helps to know so- to have somebody who knows at least a little bit about manga or at least a little bit about the genres and the conventions that they can kind of, you know, recommend to customers or even teach their coworkers like, hey, if somebody comes in and they're looking for this thing, you should totally recommend X, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And speaking of hand selling manga to customers, like how do you pitch a customer on some series like to make a manga recommendation for them specifically and what are some series that you've successfully been able to convince customers to read even those who don't normally read manga recommendations are a lot of fun uh and they can be really hard i definitely have people who walk in who are like give me a manga recommendation like sure what do you like and they're like anything and that's impossible (laughs) (laughs) that's literally impossible i can't tell you how many times i've been tempted to just hand them like really graphic gay porn because i'm so frustrated (laughs) um i haven't done that yet i'm a better salesperson than that um but hey maybe they might like it you know maybe they would but i have no way of knowing because they have not given me any information usually i will try to ask people um what else they've read that they've enjoyed um if they don't give me a specific genre or something like that i will ask them if they've never read manga before i'll ask them what kinds of books they like to read or movies they like to watch and try to kind of figure it out that way um my my crowning achievement i think in recommendations was that a um a woman came in uh, this was ages ago she came in and she was looking for fruits basket and this was before the new collector's editions came out so it had been out of print for some time and i was like oh i'm sorry that's not available um, you know, it's out of print. How did you hear about this? Is it, you know, and she said that she's never read manga before, but was looking at some list of, you know, I don't know if it was comics or books or st- whatever. And this came up and she thought it sounded interesting. And then she's like, well, can you recommend me anything else? And I was like, shoot, there's like nothing really exactly like Fruits Basket. It's pretty, <laughs> uh, you know, it's pretty distinct. And um, And so I took a chance and I said, I really enjoy A Silent Voice. And it's a nice short series. It's seven volumes long. Um, it's pretty emotional and dramatic in a way that, you know, Fruits Basket is also. Um, and I think you, you know, I think you might like it. And so she read it. She, she, you know, she bought the first volume. And then six months later or more, I was at it. We were working an event and she came up to me and she's like, hey, you recommended a silent voice to me, didn't you? And I was like, oh, yeah, I think I remember doing that. And she said, I loved it. <laughs> and I and now I read tons of manga and I go to conventions and I do all this and she had never read manga before that and so that was like the best thing I'd ever heard. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and that was just that was really me taking a chance and you know recommending something that I think had broad appeal but that I also really enjoyed and could talk about and I think again having that knowledge is helpful and knowing what you're recommending is helpful. I have a lot more success selling things that I've read and enjoyed than I have selling things that I have not read, which I do. I mean, I have done it before. I can I can still make recommendations on things I haven't read if I know something about it. But definitely, and, and being honest too, like if somebody says, well, what do you think of this? Saying, you know, it wasn't really my thing, but if you like X, Y, and Z, you might like it. Um, I think that being honest is a lot more than giving a hard sell, a lot more important than giving a hard sell. I think it works better because people don't think you're, you know, trying to take their money basically yeah if you're passionate about something you like like i think you can communicate that more easily than if you're trying to 
upsell something that you're not passionate about because your enthusiasm and your genuine love for what you're discussing, I think, will come through. Yeah. And again, I love giving recommendations. I especially like giving recommendations to um, preteen and teenage girls. Uh, we don't get it. We don't get a ton of them. I feel like a lot of our uh, our customers are older. We're near um, Boston University, so we get a lot of college students and older. So I get really excited when we have teenage girls in the store and they ask me for recommendation because I'm like, this is the best. Uh, I was you once, <laughs> uh, and I didn't, and I didn't have anybody to give me recommendations because I was shopping at Barnes and Noble. So you know, I, it, it's nice to have that um, that one on one relationship and and you know, talk with girls and see where they're at. I don't know, it's very gratifying to me. I hand just about every teenage girl um, Magic Night Ray Earth. Nice. That one worked for a while. That was like really consistent. I was selling that really consistently. That's really cool. Yeah. And I guess that also addresses the next question I want to ask. What demographics do you most uh, notice uh, read and purchasing manga from Comicopia? So it tends to be these older, more male customers that tend to visit Comicopia? Yeah, I think for the manga, we get a pretty even split of men and women. Um but in general, our, our customers overall are slightly skewed toward men, usually 18 and over. We are also, um, we kind of bill ourselves, or I try to make us appear anyway, uh, that we are, we're the gay manga store. So we have a lot of queer, queer material as well. We have a, um, we have a pride flag in our window. I try to, we, we march in the pride parade every year. So I try to make it, um, a really welcoming place. Um, so we definitely have a lot of queer customers, whether that's gender nonconforming or, um, or trans or gay or lesbian. So yeah, so that's like a huge, I do think we have a, a pretty large demographic of, of queer customers, uh, which I'm very proud of. I think that somebody's gotta, gotta do it, right? Um, mm, that's pretty cool. It's yeah. important to have a, space where queer customers can go to and feel comfortable, you know, purchasing the series they like and just a, a community space in general to meet up and talk about things they like. Yeah. And I, I would love to be able to host more events. We have, a, we're pretty small, so we don't do a whole lot of events, but I would love to do like, you know, a queer book club or something like that, but we'll see, you know, big plans. Who knows what'll happen in 2019. But yeah, I, uh, I do think that with the manga, we definitely have a pretty more, we have a more even split. It tends to be, I would say, older teenagers up through adults, usually no adults older than like 30s, for the most part. We definitely have a couple that stand out to me as older than that, but um, people tend to, I I would say the Shonen series are still our biggest movers. Obviously, My Hero Academia, it's like, we can't keep it in stock. It's consistently a third of the book scan list every month. Yeah, yeah, we sell a ton of it. Um, we also we also um, sell a bunch of My Lesbian Experience with Loneliness and its sequel. That's awesome. And for a while, we had a dedicated um, Yaoi section. We don't anymore because we because of space. Um, so that's something that we we do a lot of is Yaoi and Yuri. Again, the game manga store. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I feel like the shonen is definitely like the driving force of our of our manga sales. But then maybe like seinen and then queer stuff. Shoujo is probably at the bottom, unfortunately. I tend to like older shoujo series, so I don't know if this is like a personal bias, but I think part of it is just what's coming out is not necessarily appealing to our customers. Um, and again, a lot of those customers are men, so uh, I think there is 
Not that men don't read shoujo, obviously, but uh, I think that a lot of them are, are more interested in the action series or, you know, kind of those those deep series that that deal with, you know, the, the question of life uh, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, or whatever uh, stuff that I haven't read in a long time because I got over it. <laughs> Um, but uh, you, you, you can you can say it before the intellectuals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> although we, the so-called intellectuals, at the very least. Although yeah. we, we we don't have a we have a hard time selling like the underground stuff. You know, like red-colored elegy does not necessarily sell for us. Um, you know, stuff that's like really kind of the really niche stuff. Exactly. So that is not that's not making us a ton of money. I, I was going to say, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, it, it came really? out oh, a few man. months ago. I think it was drawn in quarterly, put that out. Um, so we have mm. it. I have it in stock, but stuff like that does not move for us um, as much. Yeah, it's it's like underground Gekiga comics that nobody, <laughs> the, the, the kids, the kids aren't interested. Yeah, I imagine you're not selling a whole lot of Yoshihiro Tatsumi work. No, no, we, we do have Drifting Life, but I think we've had it for a, quite a long time. <laughs> oh, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. But, you know, they can't buy everything. Yeah. <laughs> there are realities. but uh, And also those books tend to be a little bit more expensive. The price point is a little high. And I think people that's who, true. people who buy manga are mostly buying things in like the 10 to $14 range. And that does make a big difference. I, I do think that the more expensive your book, uh, even if it's something that somebody wants, they're not as likely to buy it. Right. Only the really dedicated audience will probably pick up a book with a higher price point than something with a lower price point, which someone might pick up, you know, just out of curiosity. Yeah, exactly. From your perspective as a retailer, uh, what do you feel is the primary audience for manga in today's market? Um. I don't think that our store is an example of this, but I do think that young people, teens and tweens, are still the driving force. The kids who are shopping at Barnes & Noble and buying all that My Hero Academia and Naruto, and uh, I do think that they are still the majority. I don't know this for sure. I don't have like statistics on this, but that is my best guess. Then on the other hand, I think that there are a lot of adults who grew up with manga, who also still buy it, or who have come back to buying it after a long time away. So I'm not sure. I also think a lot of adults, you know, and I'm talking about millennial adults, people my age, um, I think a lot of us don't have necessarily a ton of, you know, extra income for collecting a lot of books. So I think that's part of it too. But definitely I think kids with expendable income you know, who get money from their parents or who, you know, maybe have a like a, a part-time job if they're teenagers or something like that. I think they are probably the driving force of, of most of the sales. I mean, if you just, if you look at what books are selling, I mean, we were talking about, you were talking about the book scan and how My Hero Academia is on it all the time. Now, adults are reading that. I'm reading that. I buy My Hero Academia when it comes out, but I'm not the majority of the people who are buying it, certainly. 29-year-old women, you know, like... <laughs> Um, you know the shonen demographic. Exactly, I think I think that they are the biggest um, contributors. Um, and actually, I have heard, and I, again, I don't know that this is true, and I I don't have statistics to back this up, but I have heard that girls are more likely to buy than boys. I have heard that, and I think I don't know if that's something to do with the culture of collecting things, and that that girls collect more, or I, I and this is totally again, I have no evidence to back this up. Um, 
but I, I have heard that this is the case that, that women, and this is all comics, I think, women are more likely to buy the stuff that they're reading than men. And I don't know if that's talking about scanlations in particular or, or what, but I, I thought that was a really interesting statistic. So, and, and I mean, as somebody who had a Shonen Jump subscription as a 13 year old girl and has a Shonen Jump subscription now, I can absolutely tell you I was collecting lots of manga and I was buying in, in large quantities when I had a very disposable income as a teenager, so. That makes sense to me. Though I, f- I wonder that it seems that like the older end of your customer base at Comiscopia are like in their late 20s and stuff. And people that were probably around for the manga anime boom of the late 90s, early 2000s. I wonder if the the age of people reading manga and buying manga will grow older as that generation grows older because there's always newer young readers coming in but the older generation might stick around perhaps yeah i think that depends on how dedicated these kids are to their manga um Mm -hmm. you know some people just buy the one series that they like right like they they watched One Punch Man and they're really into it. And so they buy One Punch Man. And then some people like me are just into manga for the sake of manga. Like it doesn't, it's not one, even though like one series started me off, it's, I mean, I don't just collect Sailor Moon. In fact, I don't even have a full collection of Sailor Moon. Um, I have, you know, I have bought all kinds of things and I've branched out and Sailor Moon is like magical girl series aren't really my favorite genre. Um, so I, I think it's a matter of are these people dedicated to individual series and they want those things or are they interested in the medium as a whole and some people do grow out of reading comics and that's fine i don't think you need to i don't think there's any shame in reading comics as you're an adult obviously otherwise i would not be working in comics um but i do think some people just grow out of it they just don't have an interest anymore and that's fine so yeah i think it all depends i think it also depends on what the future of the manga industry looks like and the anime industry right now there's so much available, so, so much more than when I was a kid. Um, like, when I when I was watching anime as a kid, you know, there was the five shows that were on Toonami, and that's it. Like, that's what you have. Um, you know, we, we all watched Cowboy Bebop and Trigun because that's all there was. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and now people don't know what that is, which is a little terrifying to me. Uh, but, but that's because they have so many, and because those... Those ones aren't necessarily available, although I think Trigun is. And also because there's so much more. You know, you have several streaming sites that are trying to get their hands on anime licenses. um, And you don't have to just sit there and watch whatever's on. You can watch, um, you know, if you you just want to watch, like, shoujo romance dramas, you can do that. If you just want to watch action series, you can do that. Um, You don't have to, like, you know, sit through... Gundam Origins so that you can get to Hamtaro. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not the same landscape as it was in the in the 90s and 2000s. So I'm curious to see what happens on that end with streaming availability and TV kind of becoming a thing of the past um, where we more we, we curate our experiences more than we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same thing... Sorry, the same thing goes for manga, I was going to say, because now we have things like New Shonen Jump, where we can, you know, we can read everything. Yeah, because there's so much variety and so much available now, it's an easier hobby to get into. But because 
everything is so isolated you know it's also easy to stay within like a certain niche and not get into like the broader community or the broader like scope of what's available like just focus on a few select titles definitely i had a student interview me for a project he's a i think he was in middle school and he was talking about he got he recently got really into dragon ball and was talking through dragon ball super and we were talking about Dragon Ball, and it, it occurred to me that he hadn't seen original Dragon Ball, and I don't even think he'd seen Dragon Ball Z, which is what I started with. And, uh, and you know, and I'm talking about other series, and he's he's mentioning, you know, that time I got reincarnated as a slime, which is recent. And he's mentioning, you know, this, this and that that are recent. And I'm sitting here like, have you ever heard of Bakuman? And he's like, no, I don't know what that is. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and even though, like, I didn't read Bakuman when I was a kid, I knew what it was. Because it was advertised in the backs of my books, and it was advertised in Shonen Jump magazine, and so like, yeah, it's definitely um, you you can definitely fall into a hole, and not just not just a genre, but even just one series. Like, I mean, Dragon Ball has been going on for like thirty years, yeah. And you can just, I mean, you start with Super, you can go all the way back, and just you could spend a year just involved with Dragon Ball between watching it and reading it and you know taking in all the various experiences that you can have with Dragon Ball so like it, you can become very you can have tunnel vision which is not I mean it's a hobby <laughs> do what you want but yeah I don't think there's as broad a um a knowledge base I don't know that that younger I mean and that I was probably the same when I was a kid right there were a few things I liked um, and now that I'm older and I'm interested again in the medium as a whole, I take the blinders off and I look a little more deeply at everything. So I don't know. I don't know if it's a matter of age or the community or availability. Or I, I feel like we won't we won't really know until these these kids become adults what's going to happen. But I definitely imagine that the rate of consumption of new series is also a huge factor because there's always new series coming out. Like there's like 30 new anime per season at minimum. There's like constantly new manga series uh, being published as well. So it's very easy to stay caught up on like what's current and not go back into what's been coming out before. Yeah, it's frankly overwhelming. I can't keep up with anime at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I never, I mean, again, I used to just watch whatever was on TV, but I never, um, I never really kept up with something week to week in the same way that I have to do now if I want to watch something and I, if I don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> um, yeah. so it, it can be a little overwhelming. I'm, I, I don't know how these kids do it. Like, and then, you know, and, and it's not just kids. There are a lot of people who are very dedicated to anime who are, you know, keep their schedule. Uh, I can't, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not that strong. yeah it can be exhausting for sure yeah i can i can barely keep up with like two shows a season if that yeah (laughs) yeah same i there were a bunch of things i started watching that i enjoyed that i just dropped off of because i couldn't i don't have time (laughs) when when do people watch these things (laughs) yeah i did not watch a whole lot last year and of the stuff that i did watch i did not finish most of them yeah (laughs) <laughs> so now I have two questions kind of 
about Comicopia as a business. So the first one is Comicopia runs booths at conventions in Boston. And on the Manga Machinations podcast, you mentioned that manga sales tend to be your bread and butter at these events. So I was wondering how you decide what quantities of books to order, organize, and display at conventions. And what your favorite part about running a booth at conventions is. All right. Uh, I do enjoy the conventions. Um, so we were doing conventions before I ever got to the store. So some of what we do is um, pre-exists me. We do Anime Boston, uh, usually in April. And then we do Kineticon, which is in Hartford. Um, and we used to do Boston Comic Con, but that was bought and it's kind of a different landscape now. So we don't do that one anymore. But um, for Anime Boston, it's very easy. Manga is the majority of our sales because it's Anime Boston. Um and we bring everything. We bring all the titles that we stock. Uh, we bring about 10,000 books. So in terms of deciding quantities of the books, we basically look at our history and we kind of try to figure out, okay, you know, this was really hot last year. Do we think it's still going to be hot this year? How do we adjust for that? Or this is really popular in the store right now. Do we think it will also be popular at a show? How do we adjust for that? So it's a lot of, again, we're looking at history, but also some guesswork and some intuition. And we're getting ready to start thinking about that soon because uh, Anime Boston's at the end of April. So it's uh, you start thinking about it a little early, trying to get a- get out ahead of it because there's a lot of planning involved. Um, for Kineticon, we do bring mostly manga. It used to be a much more anime and manga heavy show. It's it's a mixed genre or, or mixed uh, yeah mixed genre convention, but. Um, Lately, we have brought a little bit more non-manga stuff, some Western comics. And basically, our approach to Kineticon is very different because Hartford doesn't have, like in the surrounding area, they don't have a ton of comic shops that do manga, uh, but they do have, obviously, Barnes & Noble and stuff like that. So we kind of try to curate that to stuff that we don't think people can necessarily find in a Barnes & Noble. Obviously, we do bring those titles, but we don't go heavy on them. Um, like Tokyo Ghoul is not going to sell as quickly at Kineticon because these kids can already buy it. And again, it's mostly kids. They can already buy it anywhere else. Um, and a lot of them have to, again, because there are no comic shops, they have to pre-order things online. So they already kind of have a lot of stuff and they're looking for weird, random niche things. So we try to, we try to do that without over-ordering on stuff that we don't think we can sell. It's, it's challenging. Um, Kineticon is especially challenging because we have to travel. And we have to, you know, sleep in a hotel and all these things. So it's a a pretty draining show. Whereas Anime Boston, we all live around here. So it's, you know, and and the Heinz Convention Center where the show is, is actually very close to the store. So that's convenient. We can always, if we don't bring enough of something and and we have some at the store, we can always go back and get it. That's good. Yeah, that's not a, that's not something that we have at Kineticon. So that's challenging. And Boston Comic Con, when we did it, it was a much smaller show and we would kind of bring, we would kind of bring hot titles, stuff that, that we thought would sell to an audience who maybe doesn't read a ton of manga, but is curious. So definitely we would bring some sci-fi standards like Pluto and stuff like that, some stuff for older readers, because a lot of the people who were going to Boston Comic Con at the time were collectors, um, people who have been into comics for a very long time and are older and are looking for stuff that, yeah, again, like like hard sci-fi or maybe samurai stories like Lone Wolf and Cub. Um, so we definitely skew that way. And it, yeah, it really depends on like who we think is coming to these shows. And Anime Boston is a show that everyone, you know, everyone who's into manga goes there. 
So we're looking at all kinds of demographics, whereas the majority of them are teenagers. There are also a lot of older folks and there are also a lot of families with young kids. Kineticon is a lot of younger teens and families with young kids. And, and Boston Comic Con was a lot of older folks. So it's really a matter of who was their demographic? Why do they read manga? Do they read manga? What are they into? Yeah, it, it can be challenging. Uh, in terms of what I enjoy about the conventions, I think that um, for the most part, the customer experience is very different. The people who go to conventions really are excited to be there and are very, um, they're usually very kind and very generous with their like praise. I don't want to say praise, but like they're, they're very thankful. You know, if we don't have something, they say, oh, you know, that's okay. There's not a lot of like, why didn't you bring that? Or why, you know, or it's, there's not as much argument uh, as you might have in a regular retail. Not that the majority of our customers are wonderful in the store. Um, but every now and then, you know, you, you deal with a customer who is a little difficult. And that doesn't happen as much at the shows. And I think part of that is just because people are excited to be there with their friends and there's so much stimulation and they're so excited. Um, and that, and they'll, they're happy to get whatever they can. So that's really gratifying. And also just everybody's having so much fun. I love watching people at conventions and seeing all the awesome cosplays and all the like effort that went into like everything they're doing. And also because I'm a little bit older than most of the people who are going to cons, it, it's almost nostalgic to see like, Oh, I was you once. Again, it's like, it's, like sell, it's, like sell, it's like selling things to, you know, to the teenage girls where you look at them, uh, I remember what it was like, you know, like to be with my friends and everything seemed really dire and exciting, and, you know, and you're real tired, but you're having a great time and you wore the wrong shoes, but you're going to keep wearing them anyway. And I don't know, it, it's very, um, I do feel a, a really big sense of community when I go to conventions, even if like people who are, you know, even if con goers find problems with the show, I usually have a good time. Because <laughs> uh, again, I, I get to people watch and I get to, to, you know, work with people who are genuinely excited. And I have, a, we have a great staff of volunteers who help us, especially at Anime Boston. It's a huge, I mean, we have nine booths at Anime Boston. We're, we're the biggest non-animation company, basically. It's usually, it's like, I think Funimation is bigger than us and Crunchyroll and then us. <laughs> That's really impressive. Like you're standing toe-to-toe with big companies. Yeah, I mean, we bring 16 bookcases. Again, like I said, 10,000 books. Oof, wow. Um, yeah, it's so so we're huge. And, and there's a lot. And so we have a lot of volunteers, up to 18 volunteers. And they all have a good time. And they're really great at, you know, making sure the shelves are stocked and making sure people are helped. And my role is usually, if you have a question, ask her because she knows what we're stocking. <laughs> you know, like she knows everything. Whereas a lot of them are more helping with the physical labor um, and sometimes with recommendations as well. But um, so it's nice to kind of be the point person and be able to be like, ah, yes, I know what you're looking for. That's out of print. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Good luck. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Overall, it's a very fun experience. It sounds like it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I imagine. Like how much in advance do you have to plan out for conventions? <sighs> At least a month. Um, I feel like usually we start our uh, like order meeting and planning at the end of like this year it'll probably be like at the end of February or beginning of March. Anime Boston is at the end of April. It's April nineteen, twenty, and twenty-one. I think this year. So, so yeah, usually about a month. We need to get all the ordering done and make sure we get our books in time. Um, but we also don't want to get them too early 
because then we have a lot of books hanging out around the store. Again, we're very small and we do have storage. We have a, a storage unit in the building that we're housed in, but again, we bring 10,000 books. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. And of those 10,000 books, like how much sales do you tend to get at conventions? Uh, I don't know the exact number, um, but a lot. I mean, thousands. Wow. Thousands of sales. Wow. Yeah. We have two registers at Anime Boston. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, and, and there are, you know, there are times where we're really busy and then there are times where there's a lull. But there have been times where, especially like when, when the floor first opens at a show, both registers will have really, really long lines that kind of meet in the middle of the booth because <laughs> um, we have one register at either end. Um, so it can be, it can be madness. Uh, and, and then, you know, you have some people who buy full runs of a series, um, of, you know, 30 books and they're happy to do that. We do, we do give discounts and things like that for people buying multiples in a series, but, um, yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot, a lot of sales happening. A lot of books moving real fast. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. It sounds like you don't run into a situation like in Princess Jellyfish where they have an exhibit and they get no customers at all. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, again, it depends. Like I said, um, we don't do Boston Comic Con anymore because this, our sales there were not doing great. And uh, and Kineticon last year slowed down. So we'll see what happens this year. But yeah, no, for the most part, I mean, Anime Boston is definitely like, it's solid. We've been doing it, I think, since 2003. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's been, you know, we, we, we've increased our sales basically every year um, for the most part. And, and I, you know, I'm grateful. We definitely, yeah, we're definitely the uh, the popular, one of the popular booths, I would say, at Anime Boston. That's awesome. It sounds like Comicopia is in a really healthy place as a comic store. But this leads into my next question, in that with the rise and increasing dominance of online retailers like Amazon, how are comic shops staying competitive with them? And what strategies have you employed at Comicopia to encourage repeat business and build a strong customer base and community? That's a really, really good question, um, and and a really hot button topic. I think in the in the comics retail industry right now. Uh, you were saying we sound like very healthy as a comic shop, and it's true that our convention presence is very healthy. I think our store presence is much slower. Um, we are kind of tucked in a corner. We're very close to Fenway Park, which is nice, but we are kind of tucked away. So sometimes people don't know where we are, um, and that can be a real challenge for us. And my boss uh, actually owns the space, so we don't have to pay rent. But if we did have to pay rent, the rent in Boston is very high. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extremely high. So we can't really move either if we wanted to. So there are definitely challenges being a storefront as opposed to just working conventions. Um, and I know that a lot of stores have been struggling. And we've already heard of several stores closing at the beginning of this year. Not in Boston, but in, you know in general and in in the country and in in the world um the comics industry right now is facing an interesting challenge of yeah the internet being an issue and amazon being an issue but also just um what is coming out in terms of comics there have been a lot of there's been a lot of discussion about what marvel and dc are putting out and how that's not helping sales very much Um, there's a lot of material but not all of it is great and a lot of the books are a little bit more pricey than they used to be. There are a lot of four ninety nine books, five ninety nine, six ninety nine, and people don't want to pay that much. 
Um, I think a lot of people are leaning toward buying graphic novels or trade paperbacks as opposed to single issue comics, even though most stores single issue comics is the majority of what they sell. And I think that's because graphic novels are easier to collect. It's easier to just put your book on your shelf, right? And they're more easy to access. They're easier to find. You can find them at Barnes & Noble. You can find them on Amazon. You can find them anywhere. I think some people are going digital, reading stuff through Comixology or other digital comics readers like that, um, like Shonen Jump, for example. So there are a lot of those kinds of issues cropping up. And what I've seen most stores do is diversify. So they are trying to find products that they can sell that um, expand on just their comics. So whether that's going into, you know, Funko Pops or action figures or uh, board games are very popular right now. Um, anything to get a sale that somebody might, you know, a lot of people are interested in merch. You know, they're interested in stuff as opposed to books. We definitely get people asking us sometimes if we have posters or t-shirts, and we have very few of those things. We're mostly all books. Our advantage is that we have the manga, which kind of separates us a little bit. And one of my kind of campaigns has been to advertise our manga a lot more, get more active on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram specifically, because those are good image-heavy sites, and and really talk up our, our manga and talk up our... Um, you know, our, our identity as, again, the gay manga store and let people know that we we stock queer titles and we stock titles by creators of color and that we employ women, queer folks and people of color. You know, like there's a certain amount of like knowing your community that I think is really important. We do get a decent number of women, but I know a lot of um, a lot of women who read comics don't feel that they can go into a comic shop and that's why they don't shop there. So, so really trying to uh, embrace the idea of a, a safe community space for people is really important. Um, there's another shop in the Boston area that does a lot of events, and that's how I think they bring in a lot of people. Another shop that does like gallery shows sometimes, they, they kind of showcase artwork from local artists. So it's really a matter of how can you supplement your book sales with other things that bring people in? Because, you know, Amazon is not a community, right? You don't have somebody there giving you recommendations. You don't have somebody there who can tell you what the newest, you know, uh, tell you about the newest magic booster deck. I can't do that either, actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> but somebody can, you know, in theory. Um, you know, you, you don't necessarily uh, have uh, a community there. So I think that's the thing that a lot of stores are striving to create is this idea that you're not just coming here to buy things you are coming here to have an experience. You know, you're, you're not just a giant talking wallet full of money. Like, you're a person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. You need to sell what Amazon can sell, and that's basically having interactions with people and being able to form connections with people. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, and again, I think a lot of the shops that I know do this really well, I think, um, and, and even the ones that are struggling do this really well. It's just, you know, it's really, really hard to compete. It's hard when uh, the economy is not great. And when, you know, people still want their stuff, but they need to save money because we can't afford to have huge sales, you know, like Amazon can. Um, but then, you know, people come in and, and they'll see something and they're like, I didn't know this existed. 
I didn't see this on Amazon, and that's because, you know, Amazon doesn't necessarily order a lot of that thing, or they don't necessarily advertise that they have that thing because it's it's really niche, but that's something that we can provide. Right. On Amazon, you'd have to, like, actively search a niche title out, whereas in a bookstore, in a comic book shop, just by browsing, you might discover it. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really tough... Uh, question and something that everybody's struggling with and uh, a lot of the large publishers of comics and I mean I'm basically talking about Marvel and DC um, <laughs> they don't necessarily know how to best help comics retailers and I don't know how much that's important to them uh, at this point they have you know movies that make them plenty of money and uh, other venues that make the money and they do exclusive variants or exclusive toys with chains like Walmart and Target that, you know, your local comic shop can't compete with. So it's a it's a really interesting and challenging time in in the comic shop community and I want to be hopeful, but I definitely think that unless people start really committing to shopping local, that's something that we might see less and less of in, in the coming years is comic shops. That'd be really unfortunate and really sad. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it was a tradition of mine for years, like at every Friday, like after a week of classes at college, I would visit my local bookstore which had an amazing comic selection and just browse the selection they had there. And they had just such an amazing selection of books, new and old. And I, there was always something new to discover. And I think that experience is really valuable. And it, it'd be a real shame for like a place where people who love comics can gather around this community to disappear. If the, when this focus of just like putting out products and then not valuing like the community experience. Yeah, and I think that um, as we go more and more into the digital age, we will find a lot of local shops closing. And I think that's it's going to be non-necessities first, right? Like things like bookstores and, um, you know, certain uh, like knickknack shops and things like that. They're going to start going away first. I mean, you know, Toys R Us closed. It's, a, it's the same same idea. Like you don't need to go to Toys R Us to buy toys. I have heard that um, bookstore sales have gone up in the last year, um, so there is some hope. I think that more people are aware that uh, if they don't shop at places, they're gonna they're gonna go away. I think part of the challenge there is then recognizing that uh, rents are very high, mm -hmm. so so the cost of running a business is a lot higher than it used to be, and you know the price of the product has had to reflect that to some degree. It's it's. There are so many factors. And so, I again, it's one of those things where we'll see what happens in the next few years. Uh, but I'm really hoping that, that more people, you know, give their comic shop a chance. Not not all comic shops are created equal, right? They're not all going to be great places. Uh, and again, I, I sympathize a lot with anybody, uh, especially women, who have walked into a comic shop and immediately felt unwelcome because that absolutely has happened to me. Uh, which is hilarious. I'll, I'll walk into a shop with my husband and, you know, people start talking to him, um, except that I'm the one with the comics <laughs> experience. Not that, not that he has none. Uh, he, he definitely reads comics, but, um, you know, it, it definitely, it's interesting. And, and then, you know, I'll start talking shop and everybody looks a little bit startled for a second. Uh, <laughs> like, wait, the girl knows things. Uh, <laughs> what you, you you read comics? I do. I do read comics. I I cannot tell you first appearances of literally anyone because I don't care. But uh, <laughs> I do read comics. <laughs>
believe it or not, you don't need to even read superheroes to know things about comics. That's a thing that I've I've learned. There are other <laughs> comics besides superheroes. Whoa, it's true. It's true. I, I look. I I thought that's all Western <laughs> comics were. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and did you know? Did you know that? Uh, manga and superheroes and like hoity-toity literary graphic novels are all comics. They're all comics, you guys. Whoa, all comics. what? <laughs> are, are you sure? Like, I, I thought they were called graphic novels. Nope, nope. They're all comics. I hate that distinction so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're all comics. I don't care. It's comics. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad it's. It, it feels like we're kind of like slowly growing out of that. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I think at so. least a little. I like to I like to think so. I get I get less of that, and usually it's people who uh, don't read a ton of comics who are like, "Oh, I don't read comics. I read graphic novels," <laughs> and they and they want those like uh like travel logs of Burma type graphic novel stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but that's like that's what they read. That's it. I, um, I don't I, I don't read comics. I read graphic novels like Watchmen. I don't know if you've right. heard of it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Everybody's even even uh, Alexandria Ocasio uh, Ocasio Cortez has heard of that one. <laughs> it, it's got to be pretty popular, right? Oh, yeah. uh, I actually, I this is my confession, my comic shop confession. I have not finished reading Watchmen. I've read like three quarters of it, um, and I and I I marathoned it right before the movie came out because I hadn't read it and I wanted to read it before that I saw the movie, and I never finished it. And at this point, I don't think I ever will finish it. <laughs> hey, that, that's 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 better than me. I've never I've never read it or watched it. Actually, it just I don't know. I, I just never really got around to it. You're still valid. Yeah, I'll tell you that. <laughs> there are a lot of people who tell you you're not. I'll tell you you're valid. I had a customer once who uh, was a big manga reader, and one day he came in and he was like, "My friends tell me I don't really care about manga because I haven't read Akira," and I was like, "Well, that's." nonsense <laughs> i said I, mean, I think i use stronger language than that but i was like listen this is a hobby you don't have to read anything i am the manga person here at the store and let me tell you i have not read all of akira yet you don't have to do anything yeah people should read what they enjoy having these lists of oh these are what you must read in order to consider yourself a comic fan lists are really bullshit yeah no i i, I hate that a lot I hate it a lot. I, and I and and recommending things to people without considering what they may or may not like. Like I had when the Preacher television show came out, I had so many people asking me if I had ever seen Preacher and I or read Preacher and I have not read Preacher. And at one point it may have been the type of thing I'd be interested in, but right now I'm not super interested in it. Everybody, everybody told me, Oh my god, you have to read Preacher. You must read Preacher. It's so great it's so important because <laughs> you get recommended it so much that like you just you just kind of waited you, you kind of want to wait until like the hype around it dies down like i i totally get that yeah and i and i you know i picked up preacher volume one just to flip through it to be like all right what's the big deal should i really read this and like in the first issue somebody gets his face peeled off which is fine again i don't mind i read violent things i'm like you literally recommended this to me knowing nothing about the type of book i like to read and again, I do like reading violent comics sometimes, but are you kidding? <laughs> like, but but, but just, why just wouldn't like a, but why wouldn't you like it? It's popular and everybody loves it. Right? It's <laughs> just like this blanket statement that you must read this thing. I don't know. And there's and there's a lot of um there's a lot of obviously bias and sexism that goes into those kinds of lists. There it's always like super lofty stuff by dudes that's about like 
I don't know, like even Watchmen, Watchmen did a lot of important things for comics. I'm never going to deny the fact that a lot of these books are important or were important at the time, but they always get this kind of like, um, I don't know, there's there's this like, oh, this is like a paragon of comics. This is beyond comics. This put comics on the map. This made it literary. And I'm like, it's just guys beating each other up (laughs) because they're angry. Like, I don't, they're having this like interpersonal dispute and it's like destroying the world. Like, are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I get it. I get why it's important. I get why it's good. Uh, I also think that maybe we need to cool it a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. But it sounds like it's a struggle for comic shops, you know, to stay competitive with Amazon. But your guys are doing a lot to, like, create a place that feels, you know, like more than just a place to buy things. It feels like a community space. And hopefully people will continue to value that. Yeah, that's my hope. Um, I definitely think that, again, I think a lot of retailers are really pushing into diversifying their, their stock and you know, the internet is our worst enemy and it is also kind of our best ally. We can post as much as we want on social media and try to get the word out there. Um, so it's a matter of how, you, how you're using the tools that you have. I know a lot of retailers um, sell like expensive back issues on eBay, for example, um, or they have stores, you know, e-stores of their own. So yeah, any, anything that can like help to, you know, draw attention to what they do it is useful. And I know a lot of them are using that. So We'll see what happens. Hoping for the best. And now I have a question related to Princess Jollyfish in that shoujo manga has always had a large presence in the North American manga market since the manga boom of the early aughts. But it's only really been recently that we've seen more Jose manga be brought over. And so I, I'm wondering why. Why do you think that it's taken so long for more Jose series to be licensed? Do you think that there's more of an audience for these stories now? Now that like the customers who were buying manga, you know, as teenagers in the early aughts have kind of grown up into adults? Or do you think that publishers are simply more willing to invest in more diverse series like Jose series? And as a retailer, you've mentioned this before that, you know, Shoujo and Jose aren't doing so super great at Comicopia, but how healthy do sales of Josie manga tend to be in comparison to other series? Yeah, um, so definitely shoujo is a huge part of the North American manga industry. I think it was the driving force in the offs, um, because uh, again, manga was sold chiefly at big book retailers like Borders and Barnes and & Noble and Walden Books, um, and the people who were <clears throat> shopping at these places were tended to be girls and women. Because these are in shopping centers, in malls, they're not necessarily, you know, in comic shops. They don't have to go into comic shops. So these these are more open, welcoming spaces that women are already shopping in. So I think that made a huge difference. Um, I think that taking a chance on Jose now, I think I think it's both of those those reasons you mentioned. I do think that the you know the girls who grew up reading shoujo are now women who want something that kind of has grown up with them a little bit. And I also think that more publishers are taking a chance, like you said. Um, there was some Jose that came about in the aughts. I think a lot of it was uh, kind of marketed as shoujo because they didn't want to make a distinction. Uh, I think there was an idea that maybe women, you know, adult women weren't really reading comics or weren't, weren't reading manga as much as, as kids were. And I think that's true now. I mean, I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, yeah, so uh, Nana by Ayazawa ran in a shoujo magazine so it's definitely a shoujo series paradise kiss ran in a jose magazine 
in the Jose series, even though to me it feels a little bit more like a shoujo series. Um, and that's basically just the age of the protagonist, I think, um, is making me feel that way. But those are both kind of packaged the same way um, in the, you know, five by eight format kind of sold to the same demographic, um, older teen, I think 16 plus. So I don't know that there was the distinction being made in the North American market at the time between Shoujo and Jose or even Shonen and Seinen. I don't think that like a ton of stuff was being marketed to adult men, even if adult men were buying those things. So I think marketing is definitely part of it. I think that aging up is definitely part of it. And I think that taking a chance on new types of books is definitely part of it. It's kind of a, a three-pronged thing. But um, in terms of how it does for us, uh, yeah, Jose is not does not move a ton for us. We, we do sell Princess Jellyfish with some regularity and Tokyo Tower Girls with some regularity. Some of that is because I make sure to prominently display those things as often as possible. Very good. And because I'm there, you know, hand selling it. If I'm not there and I'm not there, I don't usually see that it's been selling. Um, not that we sell a ton of it, but I think that me being there and having read it makes a difference. And I think that our, you know, the people who are buying it are, again, women my age or around my age. Um, and we don't have a ton of those customers. We don't have a ton of women in their 20s. Usually we'll have younger girls, you know, teenagers, or we'll have adult women who are coming in with their partners or coming in with their kids who are also buying things for themselves, but they're not usually looking at manga uh, for whatever reason, probably because they didn't grow up with it. So yeah, I I really want it to do well. I want Jose to do well. I think for myself, it's what I'm more interested in reading right now. I want stuff by women and for women. There's been a pretty healthy yaoi BL market in North America for a long time. And I think that, you know, Jose is kind of a partner to that in a lot of ways. A lot of BL stuff is intended for an adult female audience. So I'm I'm wondering if people who read a lot of BL are also reading a lot of Jose. I think a lot of Jose series are getting digital first print uh, uh, printings or, or digital only releases. Um because I know Tokyo Tower Reba Girls was digital first, and I love it. I love it so much, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I love Tokyo Tower Reba Girls. Uh, and so that one does sell, sell decently for us, because I always put, you know, Morgana's pick of the week on it every when it's new and stuff like that. <laughs> but um, And we definitely, again, have a couple regular customers who are buying it. But uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting, it's been really interesting and really gratifying to see more of it um, from just like a personal standpoint. And not so much as a retailer, but as, as somebody who's reading manga and who's invested in manga personally, I I want more of it. To, I want it to succeed. I want to see more of it. And and again, we're getting more Akiko Higashimura stuff coming down the line. Yes. Um, and I, I couldn't be happier. I really think she's quite brilliant. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's it's complicated, and I think it's also a little too soon to see how it's going to pan out. Um, I think a lot of these titles, you know, I kind of live in a bubble where, like, I know when something's coming out, and part of that is because I'm plugged in, and part of that is because I literally have to order these books. So I always know what's coming out because I have to be paying attention at least two months ahead of time. So I think a lot of people don't realize that these books are out for a while, like, I think it takes longer for your average reader to find out about releases. So I think it's a matter of spending a little time to see how those sales go down the line. They're not something that's going to like be hot off the press. Here we go. Romance manga for adult women. You know, I think it's something that if it's going to do well, will do well 
over the course of time. It's a slow burn, right? It's a it's a it's a Jose staple, the slow burn. Uh- <laughs> I'm glad that Jose has become more visible now and there's been more of a marketing push towards Jose titles. Because I remember Kananji USA did a big push for Princess Jellyfish and took guitar Reba Girls. They brought over the editor of Princess Jellyfish for several events like in 2017. You know, they really did a lot to promote that series. And I think, and Princess Jellyfish has been incredibly successful to the point that a Higashimura, her back in Japan, is noticing, huh, this series is doing really well in the U.S. suddenly for some reason. How'd that happen? <laughs> and so I think that Prince Yu's Jellyfish and titles like it are like now going to be paving the way, hopefully, for like more se- more Jose series, more series aimed towards adult women, about adult women, to be given the spotlight and to be, you know, promoted and and popularized and like discussed in the way that shonen or i mean obviously the big shonen series always dominate but like in the same way like other you know popular series are i think that they're gonna i hope that they are given more attention and we get more of it out here yeah i think the the great success of princess jellyfish as a jose series is that it's extraordinarily relatable Mm -hmm. um i think that that the women who are reading it um and i mean i've sold it to men as well plenty of them but i think the women who are reading it really understand that experience of being uh you know being a weird otaku um even if they've you know figured out how to socialize uh, <laughs> and do things that that the mrs have a hard time doing i think that it's it's very um it's an experience that we can all kind of relate to uh just kind of taken to the nth degree right yeah. um and so it's a good gateway uh in that sense to you know to higashimura's other work and then also to kind of the, the the demographic as a whole and what's what's available and how and, and the other thing is that Jose um, I think in a lot of ways has is a really broad demographic. There are a lot of different types of stories within it, um, and the, I mean all all of the demographics are like there's no one type of shoujo series or type of shonen series. Though you get kind of a, an idea of what a shonen series might be like um, just by hearing that it's shonen, right? But um, Jose is a little bit more amorphous, and I think that's part of the challenge with it is that, okay, you have your story about a bunch of, uh, you know, nerdy women who can't socialize and are struggling to keep their home. And then you have a story about a woman who just turned 33 and is desperately trying to get married. And then you have a story about these practitioners of Rakugo who are, you know, performing a dying art. And these are all extremely different series, and they're all, you know, Jose series. So I think that's part of it is that it doesn't have a very clear identity. It's just comics for women, which is important. Everything. I mean, you know, it's very important, but it's everything. You know, women read just as broadly, if not more so than men. So, you know. Most definitely. And I am hoping we see more diversity in the titles they had licensed and distributed. And I think that Princess Jellyfish and Descending Stories are a great start, and they have received such critical acclaim and such popularity that I'm hoping that it encourages publishers to take more risks and take more chances on series that don't necessarily fit into what are considered like popular trends, but like series that are focused on unorthodox premises or like niche premises, but perhaps have an audience that is waiting for them to discover and enjoy. Definitely. And I think there has to be a certain amount of um, detaching the stigma of women's comics from 
things. Like I think a lot of people still don't want to give credence to something. Oh, it's for women or, oh, it's for girls. Therefore, it's not, you know, as valuable, right? Because it, it's, it's, I think there is an impression that, oh, it's going to be a romance comic then and that's not worth it. First of all, there's nothing wrong with romance comics and those are totally valid and interesting. But also, there's not enough consideration of the, the breadth of stuff that women want to read. Um, my favorite examples of this are uh, Tomie by Junji Ito. is a shoujo. It ran in a shoujo magazine. And uh, I believe Helter Skelter by um, Kyoko Okazaki yeah. uh, is, is a really twisted psychological horror. And that, you know, is a women's story. It's by a woman and it ran, I believe, in a Jose magazine. So... You know, these are stories that anybody could be into. Mm-hmm. But once you tell them, oh, yeah, this was, you know, intended for a female audience, people will kind of balk and uh, and are like, oh, well, I'm not interested in women's issues. It's this weird misconception because horror has always been an extremely popular genre with female audiences, not only in manga, but in film as well. So I'm glad that now like publishers and are kind of realizing, oh, horror is a, is popular with women when, but it's always been popular with women. And so. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that there's more diverse titles coming out and like there's more attention that is being paid to what women want to read and what women have always been reading. Yeah. But we mentioned like so many of Princess Jellyfish's like endearing qualities and what makes it so special. So now I think we should transition into our discussion of Princess Jellyfish. And awesome. I'm so excited. I am too. And so let's explain the premise of Princess Jellyfish. Princess Jellyfish is the story about these group of adult uh, otaku women who live in this place called Amamizukan, and they call themselves Amars, which kind of translates into meaning nuns, because they have dedicated and devoted their lives to leading a life without any men and without any interaction with the outside world. They shun the stylish, like they're all obsessed with their hobbies and they indulge in those obsessions. But one day, uh, Sakimi, our protagonist, she is the youngest of the residents of Amikitsukan. She's 18 at the start of the story. She loves jellyfish. She's always been a fan of them since she was a kid. And one day she visits this pet shop and she notices a jellyfish they're selling. And it's a spotted jelly. And she loves spotted jellies. But she notices there's a moon jelly in the tank. And the mucus secreted by moon jellies is dangerous for spotted jellies because it'll suffocate them and kill them. And so she tries desperately, but in vain, to rescue this pot jelly. But she's helped out by a beautiful woman, uh, uh, so she thinks, uh, called Kuranosuke, who is very pretty and v- dressed very stylishly. And uh, they buy the spotted jelly, who she names Clara, and they go back to Amamizukan. And then Tsukimi realizes the next day that the woman who saved her, Kurnowski, is actually a man. And not only that, he is the son of a very wealthy and very famous politician and the nephew of the prime minister of Japan. So he's a pretty big guy in the social hierarchy. So he's he's from a completely different world from her. But uh, he takes an interest in Tsukimi and the Amars and becomes friends with them. But then later... 
Amamizukan is in danger of being demolished due to a redevelopment pro- uh, project by Global City Create to construct like a hotel basically in that area. So they've been buying up all the old buildings and taking them down. And so the Amars have to like band together to find the finances to buy Amamizukan and protect their home. And they combine Tsukimi's love of jellyfishes and Kurenosuke's love of dresses into a plan to make a lot of money through fashion. And then they embark on their journey, learning about fashion, making clothes, and realizing who they want to make clothes for, why they want to make clothes for, and fight to protect who they love and the place that they all belong to, their home. And that's basically the premise. And there's all sorts of characters that come in and out of the series. And uh, there's all sorts of story arcs and twists and turns. But that's basically the foundation of it. And I think we'll go into briefly explaining like how we got into the series and what our t- initial takeaways from it were when we discovered it. So, Morgana, would you like to describe how you got into the series and why you love it so much? Yeah, so I um I had heard about it quite a bit because there was an anime and I had not seen it, but I had friends who really liked it. I was like, oh, I, I'm going to have to check this out um, when it comes out. And so the first volume came out and I read it and like immediately was like, oh, this really is just as good as as my friends have told me. Like, this is really, you know, remarkable. It's, it's relatable. It's um, funny. Uh, it's stylish. And I just, I mean, I, I have a weakness for kind of, um, I don't know that I would classify it as a, as a romantic comedy, but it has a lot of the same beats as a romantic comedy. And so I enjoyed that aspect of it. It's also, and this is something I've talked about, I've talked about it when I've written about Tokyo Tower Rainbow Girls, and I've talked about it on uh, Manga Machinations as well, but um, Higashimura has this amazing ability to kind of um, poke fun at things and, and kind of make fun of Itsukimi and, and the Amars, but it's not mean. It's very, it seems like it's coming from a place of experience, like she's making fun of herself that I really appreciate. Uh, and, and it's just, it's hilarious. I, like, she has a, an excellent sense for slapstick. I was talking before about how I did a lot of things in college, and, and one of the things I did was clowning quite a lot of it. <laughs> um, my circus, my circus concentration was in clowning. Um, so I have a real appreciation for anybody who can pull off a gag really well, and I think that she she does that, and and without taking away from the drama or the emotion of the story as a whole. Uh, you know, there are moments of extreme comedy but they are to balance out these very real struggles that these women are having and these emotional ties that they're not sure how to navigate as they you know embark on this very ambitious business venture and you know they're they're navigating their relationships to each other and their relationships to the outside world and kind of I don't want to say learning how to be people but like learning how to be part of a community which they've kind of sequestered themselves away from for a very long time so it's a beautiful story about growth but not growth that requires them to change in a harmful way i think you know kurenosuke tries very hard to kind of um not not give them all makeovers but like really like boost their confidence and in, in some ways you can see that as like oh here's this guy is coming in and telling these girls how to be girls right um but i think 
the way it's approached and the way he kind of talks about it is like, here's your armor, right? Here, here's the way that you can present yourself and people will take you seriously. And, and so there's like, I don't know that it's a very deep social commentary that's being made, but there's a certain sense that there's an awareness of who these women are and what they need. And it's not that they need to be different. It's that they need someone to listen and to appreciate their point of view. And he's kind of facilitating that. So I don't know. There's a, I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about Princess Jellyfish. Oh, I do as well. I know what you mean. <laughs> but yeah, like this whole idea of like becoming comfortable in yourself and what you love and being able to go out into the world with your head on high and not be afraid to be yourself is like a huge part of Princess Jellyfish's appeal to me as well. And I, I'll i go into my experiences later, but I want to like uh, touch upon Colton's experience with Princess Jellyfish first. Yeah, so uh, this this was my first time reading Princess Jellyfish, and not my first time... I guess experiencing it because I had I had I had actually watched all of the anime a little while back, a uh, couple couple of years ago at this point, and um, I I at first I thought it was fine, but for some reason I I don't remember it really clicking with me all that much. Um, it was just it was just kind of something that uh, my friend really wanted to show me, and I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Because I'm I'm pretty open to whatever. And um, I thought it was really cute, and I thought it was fun, but like I said, it just it just wasn't something I really didn't think too much about, other than "Hey, this is entertaining," or whatever. And it wasn't until I started reading it like a couple months back for the show that uh, you know, I, I think when I first started reading it, I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting, and uh, I don't know, it, it, I think it, it took a while for for me to um, I guess kind of understand it and what it was going for and like where the story was going. And uh, at this point, I said it on Twitter, but like I'm pretty open to reading more of uh, Higashimura's stuff. I, actually, I really wanted to read uh, Tokyo Tarebo Girls because I had seen so many people post about that. But uh, uh, a lot of my friends were very insistent that I read Princess Jellyfish first, so I just kind of hopped onto that since I was kind of the most familiar with that. And uh, I don't know that I have like a lot to say about it other than like I really enjoyed it and I, I was really invested in the character arc of Sakimi in particular, just just this person who like has such a low opinion of herself that like you know like every time she talks about how like you know she she can't be as pretty as Kuranosuke or like I could never be somebody like that. You just kind of you're just kind of yelling at your book like no you're beautiful you don't know how beautiful you can <laughs> right? be you're like you have like you're worth more than you think you are and it's just like that i i really i i really hate to like say how relatable that is like it's just so yeah and again i think that's kind of its success right is that we all look at ourselves in uh you know and compare ourselves even though we would never do that to other people we're all very like critical of ourselves and whatnot yeah yeah. yeah, we would never do that to other people. We we think, you know, our friends, we, we think all our friends are great and we think they're beautiful and we think they're funny and interesting. But like for ourselves, we don't have the same, you know, filter. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I agree. I mean, first of all, Tsukimi's adorable. And, and every single cover of the manga, she's wearing some adorable outfit and I just can't stand it. Every, every single one is like, look at how cute this is. <laughs> I want to, I want to eat her. She's so cute. <laughs> Kagashimura is just 
a genius at coming up with some beautiful dresses and designs. Yeah. Like all the dresses that Kurenosuke wears are just amazing. And all the dresses Sakimi wears are really beautiful. Like I, I really love how knowledgeable she is of fashion that she can come up with such distinctive outfits and make so many different ones over the course of the series that characters wear. Like Kurenosuke is wearing something different in every chapter and they all look like distinctive and memorable and something that you would expect like a fashionable person to wear. Yeah, that's something I think... Um... Shoujo and Jose mangaka have a real um, advantage as as artists is that they're really, really good at, um, or, or they should be really good at fashion because that's something that's very, I think, central to a lot of women's lives. You know, whether whether we want it to be or not, I mean, a lot of the, the angst that the MRs have is that um, they are not into fashion. And so that kind of defines their life, too. So I, I do think that, and, and you know, and, and it would have been very ambitious for Higashimura to go into a story about fashion design if she didn't know anything about fashion. Um, but she is also extremely fashionable. I don't know if you've ever seen any photos of her, yeah. but she's uh, she's got some great style. She, she's a very stylish woman. Most definitely. Yeah, I love uh, I love looking at her and then looking at her work and then being like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, you know, like I, I see. I it. mean, look, if they're gonna get a Rocky to do stuff for Gucci, I don't know why they can't <laughs> seek uh, Higashimura out. You know, they should, right? <laughs> I know, I would buy that. I mean, I wouldn't buy that because I wouldn't be able to afford it, but I would want to buy that. <laughs> if they made the, one of those metamorphosis transforming jellyfish dresses from the final chapters, oh. I would definitely buy that. Yeah. Oh, that'd be so good. Yeah, I kind of want one too. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great. We could have our own fashion show, the Manga yeah. Mavericks fashion show. <laughs> Man, I, I would have loved if they'd done an event where they did the fashion from the series and actually put on a real jellyfish fashion oh. show. That would have been an amazing event. That would be so that good. Been great. I would love to see that. But what I really love about Princess Jellyfish as well is like it is really clear that this is a combination of so many different things that Akashimura has a lot of knowledge in and a lot of experience in because she did used to make clothes. When she was young, when she was high school, she's had experience making clothes. She it was very interested and passionate about fashion. And when she was a middle schooler or high schooler, she was also a jellyfish otaku. She loved jellyfish and she... And so a lot of her love for jellyfish that's is reflected in Tsukimi. But also, like, the Amars themselves are very clearly based on not only herself, but the people around her. Like, when she's talking about her staff in one of the bonus bonus, uh, chapters at the end of the volumes, like, she's mentioning how every one of them is an otaku in their own way, that they either love Korean actors or the Takarazuka Review, and they have all these parties where they share (laughs) their nerdy interests with each other. Like they watch a Takara play, or the, and then the Korean star, all that, and then her, yeah. the, her husband is a huge fan of voice actors. One of the one of the omake at the end, she talks about her husband says, uh, "Now that the you know now that the baby's asleep, let's um, 
let's get drunk and watch anime openings. Yeah. And I totally took a picture of that and posted it on Twitter. And that has been like, that's my most popular tweet I've ever made <laughs> because people were just like, yes. Couple goals. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's true though. Like, I was like, this is, I do this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's very relatable stuff. Like one of the reasons I love Higashimura so much as a mangaka is because I can see so much of her personality and passion in her work. And the place of love that she's coming from in the story for like what she's writing about is just so abundantly clear and endearing. And the fact that she has such an interesting life experience that she even like even during the making of Princess Jellyfish, she got hooked on a Korean actor and made several trips to Korea <laughs> to like buy a book. A photo book of him. And then the story of how she was in love with Morishida, like the 1992 Silverman's finalist in the Barcelona Olympics. And she <laughs> stopped and she like was obsessed with every news coverage of him. And then she, she pretended to be a news reporter and, uh, yes. organized. <laughs> And, like, so he, she could find out his location when he arrived in flight in her town. And then she went and, like, she basically went and, uh, you know, interacted with him, got his autograph and stuff. But then also, like, helped him find a hotel or something. It's like, she went to such lengths to kind of meet where she has. Like, she is a true, uh, she has experienced being a true obsessed, like, fan. So, like, when she... When she's describing, like, how powerful the obsessions and how in the zone they get when these characters are indulging in their sessions, like Tsukimi going into, like, her serious mode when she's, like, really thinking about jellyfish and making the jellyfish designs, or, like, when Maya is going on her big screeds about the three kingdoms, or <laughs> Chieko's mom is talking about how much she loves the Korean actors like you can tell that she she is coming from that with a place of love from someone who knows what it is to feel so passionately about something and to love it so much that you'd go to, to such extreme lengths to enjoy the hobby and to enjoy what you love and before we move on to talking more about Princess Jellyfish I'll also recount my experience and how I discovered the series so I, I was aware of it from when the anime first came out in late 2010. Really early 2011 is when I it really caught my eye because there was a review on Toon Zone by Carl Olsen that really shed a spotlight on the series and described it as something that, you know, was not something you normally see from anime. There's so many anime about like anime fans and otaku, but Princess Jellyfish was really the only one that was about a group of women and not just a group of women, but a group of women with diverse interests. And that interested me as someone who always liked reading and watching stories about women. And also what intrigued me was Kurinosuke as a character, because I always liked, I was always drawn to queer characters and characters to challenge gender norms. So Princess Jellyfish was on my radar after reading that review, though it still took me until a few years uh, till I watched it. I watched it in like my freshman year of college when it got added to Netflix, or it was on Netflix, uh, back when Funimation had most of their stuff on Netflix before they took it all down for their own service. And I watched through that in a single day 
And I was just in love with it because it is the kind of story that hit a bunch of buttons of things that I like watching, but, you know, don't get enough of like a, a, a story about adult women that was a diverse group of them as stories about a story that features like characters that challenge gender norms. And, you know, the anime is also just really brilliantly acted, really funny and charming with its comedic timing. And so from then on, like after immediately after watching the anime, I sought out the manga, which at the time was not officially licensed. So I sought out the scanlations and I read through those pretty quickly and I caught up, uh, I think, at the point that I caught up, it was like just when Kai Fish was introduced. It was at the point when he tells them that he wants to buy not only the six dresses that they're doing at the exhibition, but Zucchini as well. And so that was around the point I caught up with. And so I kept up with the scanlations after that. And what they did was that they released it through volumes. Uh, they didn't like do it a monthly release. They waited for the volume to come out in Japan before they scanlated it. And so I, it, there was only two volumes a year. So I, it was a long, agonizing wait every time for the next volume. But, you know, Princess Jellyfish was like my favorite series, basically, for... Favorite series I was keeping up with, basically, for a couple of years there before finally, finally, and I was so overjoyed when this happened... When Kodansha USA announced the licensed and it got added to Crunchyroll and then Crunchyroll manga had the entire selection. And so from then on, they added like volume 16. They had up to volume 16 on Crunchyroll manga after that. And then the final three chapters uh, they did on Comixology and they were they didn't put those in Crunchyroll manga for some reason. But, you know, of course, I bought that up when the volumes came out. I bought those up like immediately. Like, I was so overjoyed that Akiko Higashimura's works were finally coming over here. The Princess Jellyfish was finally being published because, you know, it was it's one of my favorite series because at the core of it, it is a series about being true to yourself and being comfortable in who you are and being able to find people who love you for who you are. And that meant a lot to me, alongside a whole bunch of other teams that I'd find incredibly compelling and the characters, which I love and love their character arcs. And of course, how unique and refreshing the premise and the common and the combination of different things that I enjoy in stories was. So I just was completely in love with all those factors. I remember, you know... It was shortly after the manga got it added to Crunchyroll manga. Like I was at New York Comic Con and I I remember telling like a Crunchyroll rep rep that, you know, I was so overjoyed that they added, you know, Princess Jellyfish and if they had plans to add any more of, you know, her manga to Crunchyroll manga. And like, you know, they mentioned that, you know, they were aware of some like 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 Kakakakashikajika, but like they... They didn't, ultimately, Country Roll Manga hasn't added more of her stuff, but, you know, shortly after that, like, in the next year, you know, Kodansh USA licensed Tokyo Tower Repa Girls, which I was overjoyed about, too. So, you know, I'm so happy Akiko Agashimura is now, like, incredibly popular ma- mangaka in, like, the Western fandom, because before, like, Kodansh released a manga, you know, people might have been aware of Princess Jellyfish through the anime, but no one was really talking about her or her work. But after Princess Jellyfish and Tokyo Tower Rebels come out, like, now everyone is, seems to be aware of her. Everyone knows that she's awesome. And there's such a hunger for her work now that I feel more confident than ever that we'll get more 
more of it in the future, which makes me extremely happy. And I'm extremely happy that, you know, Prince of Jellyfish has done so well over here. Yeah, I think they're going to I think they're going to put out a box set of Princess Jellyfish, which is great because I haven't bought it yet. Not all of it. Um, uh, and I'm kicking myself because I, I do not regret buying these volumes like day and date when they come when they came out. But like, man, that box set looks good. <laughs> Same thing with the Silent Word box set. I'm like, oh, I don't regret buying this and supporting this. But man, do I really? I love this box set. Looks great. Do I want to double dip? I have to consider it now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I uh, I didn't and I hadn't bought a Silent Voice before either. So I got the box set of that. Nice. And I'm kind of glad I waited. But, you know, if they ever do box sets of literally anything else I own, I'm screwed. Because <laughs> I, I usually get it all. You know, I'm pretty good about, like, making sure I get everything. I have a copy of Princess Jellyfish Volume 5 because it was damaged at work. Uh, so it was like a, you know, we're told to donate or destroy damaged books when they come in. Oh, no. So uh, I was like, I'll just donate it to myself. <laughs> um, good idea. But, uh but that's the only one I have. I was like, oh, well, eventually I'll get the rest of them. And then they announced the box set. And I was like, excellent. <laughs> I'll just do it that way. But yeah, and I, so so I think that speaks to, yeah, uh, Higashimura's popularity quite a bit is if they're thinking of putting it in a box set, that must mean that it sells, is my assumption. That's my guess. And then, and then yeah, we're getting a lot more for work soon. So, and I, I don't know if you guys have read Tokyo Tarariba Girls yet. I, de- I definitely do think you should read Princess Jellyfish first. I think Tokyo Tarariba Girls is a very different story. But man, I'm obsessed with it. Well, I definitely plan on reading it. Yeah, I bought, I've bought every single volume, like, when they came out, but I haven't, like, read too far into it. But, like, after reading Princess Jellyfish, I'm like, you know what? Now it's time. I, I need more. I, I've, my Higashimura hunger has been, re- has been rekindled, and I need more now. So, yeah, I've seen so much praise lavished on Tokyo Rebel Girls, which makes me really happy and intrigued. So I gotta get on that as well. I mean, like I said, I'd seen so much praise for it that, like, I almost wanted to read that first. <laughs> yeah, I think it's better that you did wait because it's a very it's a, it's more cynical than than Princess Jellyfish. And it's it's very much a Higashimura manga, but it's it's definitely for an older like audience, an older, more cynical audience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. I, I mean, I think ultimately it will turn out hopeful. That's my my guess. I'm keeping up with the print volume. So I'm four volumes in. Uh, and every single time I, like, find myself crying. <laughs> like, this isn't fair. <laughs> um, but it's really wonderful. She's just so good at doing that thing where she, you know, she sees an ill of society, like being an otaku or being an unmarried 33-year-old. And she just is like, I'm going to zero in on this and make fun of it, but I'm going to do it with, like, compassion. Yeah. yeah. And it's really... It's, it's a really hard uh, balance to strike, and I'm constantly impressed uh, with her ability to do that and with her ability to put that into a plot that is also engaging. You know, usually creators are really good at a few things, but they definitely have a flaw, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like I haven't really found her flaw yet. It might just be because I'm obsessed right now, <laughs> um, and I think she's great, but I, I have a hard time figuring out what it is that she's missing. <laughs> maybe she's like, maybe she's. Uh, Got really bad breath or something. <laughs> Maybe that's really, you know, something I'd never know. Um, I mean, I, I guess the the only thing that like I had trouble with was um, and this this is probably just like this just comes down to like my taste and like humor, but like 
I don't know. It's it's weird that like th- this might be weird to say. I don't know if I, I like I can't I can't remember too many times where like because I really enjoyed reading Princess Jellyfish, but the the weird thing is I don't remember like laughing at a lot of it. Um, oh, you're alone, man. Not, 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 that I, not that I didn't think it was funny. It just like I I think a lot of it comes down to like, and she's not like super reliant on it, but like you know she 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 does reference a like a lot of like really specific old like Japanese pop culture from time to time that like kind of goes over my head. And that's true. Yeah, yeah. This is coming from somebody who's a huge fan of Gintama as well. So like mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I don't know, like, I, I can't say that, like, it made me, I, I, I honestly, I think the one character that really always made me laugh out loud was Hanamori. Yes, Hanamori <laughs> is amazing. Like, I, I'm conflicted because, like, there'd be times where I thought, I, I kind of wish Higashimura would just do a series about Hanamori, but, like, I also, but, like, you also really get your fill of Hanamori. Like, I feel like if I got more of him than i got in princess jellyfish i i feel like i get tired of him almost yeah he's a fun gag but i don't know if he could sustain a whole series maybe like a a couple chapters like a day a day in the life yeah a short gag comedy manga i think hanamori would be good for but hanamori is one of the simpler characters in that he doesn't like have a deep like emotional foundation grounding or foundation for what he does mm-hmm. like a lot of the other characters even the extreme characters like maya like there's something there's some pain rooted in like their past experiences that drives them to act how they do but hanamori doesn't really have experiences in his past of like you know keep him guarded or keep him acting a certain way he just is who he is and he (laughs) makes no uh he doesn't hide that at all like he will say such (laughs) boldly like uh inappropriate things with a straight face or boldly insensitive things like a straight face and very seriously and not like really care and he's also very quick to change his mind or you know throw someone else under the bus like when he had when he makes a reservation for Chu at this fancy restaurant but then he decides to take the reservation for himself and Nisha instead and like throw Chu into a different balcony place which has a lot of wind like he's a pretty selfish guy yeah he's he's he is pretty quick to start rooting for the winning team whoever that may be um <laughs> uh, he's pretty self-centered he's yeah. mostly cons- he mostly thinks about kind of like himself and like how what he can get out of things like uh, and he makes this decisions that can often like be to the detriment of others like when he buys like that 500,000 yen buddha oh my God. And, like <laughs> yeah. causes them to lose <laughs> So much fun. I think also if you gave him the kind of depth that all the other otaku have, he wouldn't be a good character anymore. Like I yeah. feel like I I'm not I'm not interested in his deep dark secrets, right? Like that's not his function. Yeah. Yeah. Um the story isn't about him. Yeah, if you gave him that I mean in one way it's nice to have him as kind of um a foil to show that like obsession to the degree that he has exists 
you know, outside of a place like a Mars. Right? Yeah. Like, and this is another team of the series that I, that enamored me and made me fell in love with it is that it really emphasizes that everyone is a little bit of a nerd in their own way. Everyone has something that they're passionate and they love, maybe even to an obsessive degree. And it's not just like the stereotypical idea of what a geek is. Like you can be like a nerd about anything, whether it be Mercedes Benz is uh, whether it's like idol groups like the prime minister whether it's fashion like kurinosuke everyone is a little bit of a nerd everyone has like something they're really knowledgeable about that they're really passionate about and that they can take to extreme sometimes but like it's such a important and core fundamental part of their identity of their identity and gives them so much joy and uh, in an interview with Suke Mune, uh, Higashimura's editor, like that Barnes and Nobles did, uh, that Bridget Alverson did, like Suke Mune Sen said that the crux of Princess Jellyfish is that you're not alone and you can talk about what you love with others. And like that's what makes the series special to me is that like the Amars as a community is like a place where all these different women who are like really big nerds of us different things like they don't. They have some shared interests, but they all have that one specific thing that they're extremely passionate about. And they can all come together and they can have this space space where they can enjoy their hobbies without judgment and without like discrimination because everyone there knows just how much that thing means to them and they respect that. And there's just this, there's one powerful scene that I remember is like when uh, Kurinosuke is like trying to take Chieko's dolls to sell them off. Bonba like just taps on the, on the shoulder and says like stop what you're doing like you you may not understand this but to Chieko those dolls are like her family like they're they're important to her and like this series really makes it clear that you know the Amars and you know all the other people who have like streaming sessions as depicted in the manga like they don't need to grow out of like these hobbies or abandon what they love to fit in with a society they can become comfortable in who they are and in what they love and go on the world and like hold their heads high in sharing what they love with other people and being themselves. And that's what I really love about the series is that the series really emphasizes it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to be a little nerdy. Everyone's a little bit nerdy and you should embrace that and not be afraid to find people who are, who want to engage with you and share those interests with you. Even if they might not have those interests themselves, like the Sakimi and Shu relationship, like Shu at the beginning of the series doesn't know anything about jellyfish, but he becomes enamored and fascinated with Sakimi's passion and love for it and falls in love with her because he's drawn to like her passion for jellyfish. And so it's, it's stuff like that. It's like you don't have to hide who you are to fit in with society. You can be yourself. And I think that's just such an important message. And it does that, you know, it has that message, which is, you know, it's it's not an uncommon message, right? You see a lot of media that has this like, be yourself kind of message, but it does it in a way that's not um, like super trite, like because it has all these different threads going through it, you don't even really think that much about what the overall theme is i mean you know what it is right like you you get the sense but that's not really what you're focusing on as a reader which i think is really also speaks to the strength of it um you know as a as a as a piece on a whole yeah and Agashimura doesn't isn't didactic with the message she doesn't like 
hit you over the head with what ch- how she's doing and like how she's writing the story. Like she just throws out like, hey, here is the prime minister. He is kind of a gossip. He really likes idols. But like he is like head of state in Japan and stuff. And he has these nerdy interests. And like she contrasts the Amars with other characters in the story that are like out in society, but they all have their own interests as well that you can recognize. You can see that, oh, you know, like all these people, like they have something, you know, quirky. They have their own quirks. They have their own like unique interests, but they all can be together as part of a community and society. They don't have to hide themselves away. And I think that's important for like people who, you know, might think that their hobby or their area of interest is like something that no one else would understand, like, or is something that'd be weird, but to like really feel like, yeah. Dude, there is someone who is willing to share and talk about what you love with you. Yeah, and, and you know, Higashimura did a good job of kind of underlining that point by having all the women in Amars, none of them just like anime, right? Or like something very typical. They, they all have very specific, very niche interests. Specific and distinct. Yeah, and and, and even though they're all very different they all kind of share in this collective obsession. They see everything through the lens of their own interest, but they can still kind of relate to each other, even if they can't really function as well, you know, out in the world, or they think they can't function as well out in the world. So yeah, that that was one thing. You know, I kind of expected going into it, oh, okay, they're all like really into anime, or like they're all, they all read a lot of manga. And like they do have those interests too. There's kind of a, the, there's the understanding that they know about these things, but they're not, um, you know, that's not the focus. The focus is, is way more specific than that. I mean, like, being a jellyfish otaku is such a, like, strange, like, I would never have, like, thought of that kind of interest as an otaku interest, you know? Or or, or being a train otaku. <laughs> yes, yeah. I love Bamba. Yes. I love everything about her. She's amazing. Apparently, it's very popular for kids in Japan to be really into trains when they're little. This is what I, from what I understand. So, so I wonder if it's just like a, an ex- I, I wonder if a lot of people are really into trains. I, don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know how, how common that is. I, I just, I just kind of assumed that most kids in Japan were just all about bug catching. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> But that's another thing I appreciate about the series is that they aren't like all anime otaku. Like these are all of the women are fans of different things. They have different areas of interest. And because they have different areas of interest, they have different skills that all contribute really well when they, you know, start up the clothing line, when they start up jellyfish. Like everyone has their own role that they're really good at. Maya, you know, has a great figure for being like a model in a different way that Kurinosuke has. Like Chieko's expertise making kimonos comes in hand really well when they're making dresses, when they're stitching dresses. Uh, Nomu's experience with, you know, making designs and coding for dolls comes in handy really well. I'm also really impressed, and I think this is something that is very challenging in all comics, um, there's such a range of body types. Yes. Um, which is really gratifying. I think that that's not something I see a lot. Uh, and, and, and even like, you know, even the thinner characters have a range of body types, right? Like, it's not just like, okay, we have some fat characters finally, which is great. Um, you know, I, I think that, and, and none of it is like played as a joke, right? Like, Chieko is kind of round, but she's like never the butt of a fat joke, really. Like, it's not, 
it doesn't really go that far. You know, there's an understanding that, okay, this is her shape and this is the way she looks and how do we work with that? Um, and there is a little bit of like teasing Tsukimi about her like chubby arms. Yeah, especially when she starts working more closely with uh, with Kai and his uh, employees and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his employees uh, bully her about that, for sure. Well, I think there's the distinction, too, where it's like Kai's um, whole business is about conforming. Yep. Right? Yeah. And, and about being the same and about looking the same. Whereas even if Kurunosuke like, will tease her about her arms and like tell her to put on a, you know, put on a stole so that nobody can see that. Um, or like it won't, or like the dress won't zip all the way. It doesn't fit her properly. He's like, okay, put something over. It's fine. There's a, there's a, like, okay, this is what we're working with and you don't have to change. We'll, we'll adapt. You know, we can, we can make this work. Um, and part of that is just the nature of, um, uh, you know, being kind of an ad hoc small company versus being a you know a giant corporation, but that's kind of a commentary too on how like on the one hand we're all, we're constantly being told like this is the way to look good, it's the only way to look good. Whereas you have jellyfish and they're like this is the way to be comfortable and look good, and you can do this no matter where you're at. You can adapt. It's all about adapting. I feel like I keep finding more themes as we're talking. <laughs> like I'm like, wow, I never thought about that. <laughs> like, there are a lot of themes in the series. Like that contrast between a Vidi and what their clothes are made for. Like the emptiness that Sakimi notices in their clothes because their clothes are all about appearance and nothing more. There's no reason why these people are aspiring to wear these clothes and these clothes are all about selling the product and fantasy of looking like elegant uh, but not like really about making someone satisfied or happy with how they look because the fashion trends are always changing and they and it's just this endless cycle of having to buy clothes and discard clothes to keep up with the trend whereas with jellyfish and their model what kuronosuke eventually realizes when you know chieko tells him about like how despondent and how kind of unenthusiastic the amarsa become like making the clothes that nomu has told her you know what's the point it's not like we can wear these clothes anyway that makes Kuronosuke realize that, you know, they need to think about clothes that the Amars would want to wear and what would the Amars want to wear. And that's an entire process where not only him, but Gigi kind of spirit sets this and tries to figure it out by like taking the Amars to like a clothing store to like try and buy clothes and figure it out that, you know, what is it that we that we want that we feel comfortable in? You know, what are clothes that, you know, it doesn't feel like we're putting on experiences. We just can be ourselves and we can, we can sh be adaptable depending on the situation we're in. And that's what, how they come up with the metamorphosis jellyfish clothes that, you know, can go undergo different changes depending on the situation you're in and you can uh, adjust it in different ways. It's flexible. It's machine washable. Yeah. It's, you know, really convenient. And it's not set. It's like, Clothes to help you, you know, be comfortable and be who you are. And like, it's, it's sticking to what the Amars want and what they want in their clothing. And also something that's broadly appealing and broadly accessible and affordable in a way that Avidi's clothing line and the ephemerality of, of, how, of what that looks like and of what looking fashionable and what be staying stylish and trendy 
and how that is not sustainable or something that gives lasting happiness or comfort or just, you know, flexibility. Yeah, it's more it's it's uh, you working for your clothes as opposed to your clothes working for you. And, and and being comfortable in, in what you're wearing in more ways than one, not just physically comfortable, but also confident to, you know, to a measure uh, of confidence. Um, exactly. I think that throughout the series, Sakimi is admiring Kurenosuke for his confidence and that he can wear any type of clothes and he feels like him, himself in them. Where Sakimi wears, you know, fancy or stylish clothes and she feels that she... She doesn't feel right in them, you know, even if other characters say, oh, man, you look so beautiful, Zucchini, you but she doesn't feel comfortable in them. She doesn't she doesn't feel like herself. Yeah. So it's all about it's an entire journeys throughout the series for Sukumi to figure out what she wants in her clothing, like what clothes would she feel comfortable in? And that's just a fascinating part about her journey. But I also really like this idea that, again, when we get into this contrast between Avidi and Jellyfish and how they run themselves as business, like Kurinoski, even though he has a passion for fashion, doesn't really know much about how the business works. And so as the series goes on, like they increasingly realize, oh, we need to invest a lot of money in this. And for a return that we might not get back. And that really culminates ultimately when they have to, you know, spend an extreme amount of money at a point where, you know, money is so tight that they don't have a lot. They're kind of going to depth here uh, to get this space at the exhibition. And they've sunk so much money and time into it and no one buys their dresses. And we see that later on a macro scale with uh, Avidi's clothing line when they have so much excess stock of clothes that they don't sell that they don't even bother to put them into outlet stores or like just s- sell them to uh, discount them or do any sales like they just burn them because it's all about of you know keeping the demand for the clothes high so they can't saturate the market with the clothes and so it's like they burn money to make money it's like the real powerful line there and and the struggle to earn money to and doing what you love and then losing sight of what you love because you're just into pursuit of money is such a core team of the series because even earlier in the series, as they're making dresses, like the Amars get burned out because they're not enjoying what they're doing anymore. And like, even though they're just doing this to make money, but they're not really getting anything returned and it's not really making them happy. And then on a macro scale, we see later with Kai that he starts started out making money and like having interesting clothes as a means of survival, like as a means of getting him and Fayong noticed and adopted. Like he noticed that how one of his uh, fellow siblings at the orphanage, how, you know, they got noticed because they were wearing a collared shirt. And from he took that to heart. And so he made an effort to dress fashionably. You know, he took an interest in clothes to like take the clothes that people were throwing away, taking away the waste that they were leaving. And, you know, he repurposed them as things that they could sell at the orphanage's shop. So he took the waste of other people and then made something new out of it. But as he became more successful in the finance world, he became more wasteful and he lost sight of like what he wanted. Like there's this powerful moment is like 
where he's thinking to himself, like, do I enjoy making clothes? And like, he doesn't really have an answer for that. It's just like business for him. It's just like this empty money making cycle. And then Fayong later tells Kurenosuke, it's kind of like this Chinese legend, which is basically like this idea of the Ouroboros, where it's like, you know, this monster that eats everything in sight. And when it's done eating everything, when it's done consuming anything, it has nothing left. So it starts eating itself. And it's just, it's an endless empty cycle where you just want more and more and more money, but you lose sight of like what you are, what your actual goal is, what happiness you wanted to achieve. And Kai ultimately does not realizes that too late and he gets kicked, you know, his company crashes thanks to the Chinese Black Monday crash and he gets he is American investors, you know, buy up his company, he gets kicked out uh, and he's basically left with nothing after, you know, accumulating so much wealth. It's all gone in an instant. And meanwhile, and Feiyong meanwhile, you know, realizes realizes this emptiness a lot sooner. And she, you know, leaves Kai and she goes back to work in the orphanage. And there's this powerful scene where we see that she is reusing like old table uh, sheets as cloths and stuff. Like she is, she's not um, in sharp contrast to the waste of a vidi of burning like en- entire tons of clothes and just burning them up like she has is recycling like these clothes and these sheets you know putting transforming them putting them to new use she's not like destroying old things she's transforming them into something new and that's just such a powerful message i think that it's like to not be wasteful or and like to think about how to take something that isn't useful anymore and turn into something new or take something that you know, can't be used in its current form and use it for something else, which is what eventually, you know, Kurinosuke and Tsukini realize should be the theme of the jellyfish dresses, is that something that can transform depending on the situation that has more than one use and that can be reusable and sustainable. It's really amazing how much content there is when you, I mean, I'm sure you could do this with a lot of a lot of series, a lot of literature, but when you like break it down into all these tiny scenes, you know, like you're talking about Fei Long and what she was doing with the cloths and like that does that's not a long scene. There's not a lot going on there, but there's so much that can be read in that like simple action that she's doing, you know, that simple way she's decided to subvert, you know, what Kai was doing. It's really, you know, w- with just a few panels, right? With just, you know, you kind of get this the sense of a, of a greater concept out of out of that simplicity. Yeah, and I really love Higashimura as a writer because she has such a concrete idea of the theme she wants to explore in her story and crafts it in such a way to enhance every aspect of that story. Like every plotline in the story all ties back in, feeds back into that like overarching themes that she's trying to explore. Colton, like you mentioned in one of your treats, like how you noticed that everything in a particular chapter all fed back into that whole burning money, wasting money to accumulate wealth, like putting a bunch of money at risk in the hopes of 
accumulating more money. Like in that same chapter where we see Kai burn all those clothes, we also see like Hanamori, you know, or that's it's actually a later point where it's like Fayong takes Kurenosuke to the warehouse where she shows him all the clothes to be burned. And in that same chapter, we see Hanamori like lose all his money in gambling and attempt to, you know, make back so much more money. Mm -hmm. And so like she compliments like all her she compliments like her plot lines by contrasting them together and uniting them with the same team and the team developed over a long period of time like Sukimi realizing and kind of trying to figure out like what she wants in clothes and like why she's making clothes and what she hopes to get out of them is contrasted in this chapter with this other character called Yo, where she learns his story and how you know he also used to he started up like making a fashion brand with his friends, but he left them behind to join a vidi. And now he's just making clothes, but he doesn't seem particularly happy. And so his story is contrasted with Sakimi. And at the end of that chapter, she sees the reason that she's making clothes. Like she sees all her friends wearing her dresses on TV, uh, showing signs of support for her as she's about to embark on the plane to Singapore. And so you know that kind of sells home the moment that she where of her character development of her realization that oh this is the reason that i'm making clothes it's not for the sake of making clothes it's not for the sake of making money in of itself it's for the sake of my friends it's for the home that i live in like that's the reason we started making these clothes and the reason we wanted money and that's the reason that i'm continuing to make clothes and why i mean i'm making the sacrifice and leaving them behind to go to singapore for them it's just such a powerful moment of character them, but also, again, ties into this whole overarching theme of money that's being explored throughout this, through the entire series. And money versus passion and creativity and what you love. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of the themes, really. Yeah. And I appreciate, I, I appreciate, too, that it kind of started out like that with these reflections on, you know, marriageability and attractiveness. And it never... I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but it doesn't really focus on that. It does, like, there's a theme, right, that runs through it of marriageability and, um, you know, her relationship with Shu, but it kind of ends really open-ended in in those terms, which, you know, as a reader at first, I was like, this is really frustrating. I want some, like, romantic payoff. Yeah, I felt <laughs> the same way, but I was I was legitimately surprised with how things ended. I can't say I really saw that coming. I, I really was expect I really was expecting like a marriage by the time the series was over. Or at least like a at least some kind of consummation of a relationship, right? Like there is there's a lot of like will they, won't they stuff going on. Um and there's the engagement to Shu and that relationship and Yeah. There's the relationship with Kuronosuke and it's all kind of just you know, like Kuronosuke like realizes his feelings and then it's the end. Like there's no, there doesn't it doesn't really go beyond that. And again, as a as a reader, that was frustrating in in many ways. But I think that ultimately was a good way to end it. Um, yeah, for for me and for me in particular, I um I'm usually not a big fan of the kind of like will they won't they like uh, love triangles yeah. kind of stuff that 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 kind of stuff. I just I just don't really find very interesting usually. So I I really appreciate that like. I don't want to say that stuff took like a back seat to everything else, but like I guess like we said like 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 we're saying it wasn't the focus and 
like there was enough of it there to where it didn't overstay its welcome and i was actually kind of like invested in it but i also realized that's also not it really wasn't like the entire point of the story so i think it it, it was it was there just enough for me to actually want to see like where that went and even if it was kind of left open ended i i i kind of i kind of like where we left things personally yeah, and it's it's something that she does, again, not giving any spoilers, but in, in Tokyo Tower Rainbow Girls too. I mean, the whole plot is that Rinko, the main character, has turned 33, and she and her friends have decided that they're too old to still be single, and they need to get married before the 2020 Olympics. So the theme is romance and marriage, but it's really not about that, even though that's kind of the goal. It's more about, like, in in many ways the same as, as princess jellyfish is kind of like an exploration of self and what can you um what do you want and what can you see happening in your life and how do you define what happens to you in your life and how and how do you prevent other people from defining you too because i think um you know a, a lot of the, the themes of romances are how does this romance define this person and that's not really how that's not really how life works right so there's a there's an authenticity to it as well as like it's when when you're looking for romance or when you're looking for a partnership it's not just about that romance there's a lot of stuff that you're doing on internally and a lot of stuff that's going on with you as a person that doesn't really come to the surface in a lot of romance titles or titles that have romance in them it's more like oh look and then they fell in love and they went on their way or there's a horrible like love triangle which i also usually hate um, I was actually very frustrated with a lot of the, the I mean, I, I think, the, again, like you said, it kind of takes a backseat or, or there's just enough of it that it's not frustrating and you're kind of invested. Yeah. But there was there was a lot of it that I was just like, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why do you even like this guy? I don't understand. It, it's, 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 <laughs> it's weird in that I was sort of invested in it, but there were also times where I was just kind of like, I don't know if I really want anything to come out of Sukimi and, and Shu as cute as they could be. Like, you could tell that, like, like the relationship just kind of happens. I, I don't really know how to describe yeah. it. Like, there's there's not really a lot between them. Right. And I think it's a matter of that kind of pressure, right? They both kind of have a pressure on them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Shu's is that he needs to be married because he's a politician. And Tsukimi is, well, somebody likes me, so I guess I should go for it because this is never going to happen again. Um, which is nonsense. But, yeah. Uh, you know, but like there's that kind of internal pressure. And that's the only thing that really brings them together, I think. And yeah, and I agree, there's not much more to it. And that, and so I felt the same. Like, I didn't really want anything to come from that relationship. I'm kind of just suddenly realizing, like, that that's the point. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Again, like, the more we talk about it, I feel like I'm learning more. <laughs> so, just to chime in on my thoughts on the Sikimi's true relationship here, is that, like, when I was originally reading the series as it was coming out, you know, I was definitely into Sikimi Shield. You know, I, I did think that there would be a cute couple and, you know, I was invested in like the whole plot of Shu going to Italy to find a wedding ring for her. And I did find all that like charming romantic, but in rereading the series, especially, I, I do really appreciate that it did not culminate in, uh, in any characters coupling up because I don't think that a sort, the story needed that. Like this story wasn't about these characters, you know, finding each other through like romance and that necessitating them getting married or becoming a couple or anything. It's like them finding themselves just being around other people. 
and interacting with other people. And it didn't have to, you know, result in a big wedding thing, which is why I really like in the final chapter how Kakashimura, like, you know, kind of preempts the reader's questions by saying, huh, you want to ask if they get married? No need to get so hung up on societal conventions like that, right? Come on. Like, I really appreciate that about her and her attitude towards that that you know their happiness isn't defined by like who they fall in love with or like whether they get married or not like their happiness is being comfortable in themselves and who they are as people and then on another level i also i'm glad that the security relationship didn't like come together because when you really get down to it, Shu doesn't know that much about Sakimi. Yeah, that's something, that was like a huge red flag for me, actually. I was like, no, don't marry this man. You'll be very yeah, bored. Yeah, there's this big moment, like on their, basically their first date at the restaurant that Hanamori takes him to, you know, uh, Shu is asking Sakimi, like, about, like, what she does and, like, whether she works or stuff. And, like, she, he, like, reveals that he just thought that Sakimi was one of Kurunosuke's friends from school. And then he realizes, oh, wow, I don't really know anything about you, do I? But, like, immediately after this date, he, I mean, in during this date, it ends with him at telling her that he loves her. And then immediately afterwards, he decides he wants to get married to Sakimi, and that's when he goes to Italy to get the wedding ring. Like, but even though he, he even he himself has just admitted he doesn't know that much about Sakimi. Yeah, that that was like a huge. I'm like, you know, like slow your roll, buddy. You you don't. This is not how relationships work at all. Uh, you you really need to calm down. Yeah, it really says something that they're basically both just kind of doing this because it's that's what's expected of them. Or especially, especially in Shu's case. And it's what they think that they have to do. And, and gladly they both come to realize that that's not what they need. That's not how their lives need to go. Like their lives do not need to culminate in marriage. And that's not what their relationship needs to be either. Like they can just enjoy each other's company as friends. And like they think about this idea of like all three of them, Shu, Kurnosuke, Sakimi living together. Uh, you know, just as friends. And so I really appreciated that a lot. That, you know, they event they have get the emotional maturity. They realize they don't need to rush into things and that they need to take sometimes to figuring out who they are as individuals first and peoples and explore their passions and become like more well rounded people first before seriously considering like commitments like marriage or like, you know, and stuff like that. Which I really appreciated. And yeah, I mean, that's, and also that whole idea of like not fitting into societal expectations and like maybe that is wouldn't be hap make for happier lives is also kind of like reflecting this idea like when Shu is proposing this idea to Kurnosuke about all three of them living together, like Kurnosuke like asked, could his mom have lived with him back then if they had thought like that, if like his dad had thought like that, you know, maybe he didn't have to be separated from his mother at such a young age and like go for a decade without speaking or seeing her if like they if like they weren't afraid of like what the media thought about oh how scandalous like uh, Koabuchi's lover is living with him and with his like uh, illegitimate son and all that like they separated Kurnosuke from his mother and that hurt both of them and you know it's really moving that uh, that finally like there's that scene like where Kurnosuke sees his mother at the 
exhibition they do at Amamitsukan and like he bursts into tears and yeah and so did man. I yeah yeah right a... I know I was like finally <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a real gut punch and then it is. you know and it fits into that transforming thing later is that like after seeing his mother and like he's dressed up in dresses because partly because he's he was inspired by his mother and like it's kind of his way of being connected to her because like several times throughout the series, it's remarked upon that Kurinosuke looks a lot like Lena when she was young. And so he feels a connection to her when he's wearing dresses that she would look good in or or, or were a part of her wardrobe. And then like, she also bought a jellyfish dress because she wanted to have a connection to him as well, to Kurinosuke after so long. But then like in this moment, after seeing his mother again, like he kind of transforms and like he wears like a suit when he, you know, takes out Tsukimi to, like, the final hurrah of the exhibition. It's, like, another transformation for him that kind of is a sign of, like, his emotional growth. But, like, you know, he's also going to be able to change his person now that he has kind of gotten through this, emo- like, this huge emotional, like, struggle he's had that has kind of haunted him throughout childhood. Like, now that he can, like, kind of reconnect with his mother again, like, that can help him start growing as a person, too. Yeah, and there's this there's this kind of theme of the the previous generation symbolizing kind of the established norm, right? And then the the main players in the in the story are all kind of finding ways that that's I mean, because because the the established norm has obviously hurt people, you know, a, a lot of people, including that last generation. So it's kind of also a, a celebration of how. As each generation comes forward, they find ways to break down the harmful aspects of that, you know, idea of that norm that, um, you know, that prevent us from, from it, you know, being ourselves or, or being with the ones we love or connecting with people. So, yeah. Yeah. There's just like, the more we talk about it, the more I'm like, oh, right. And then that thing. And then that also. <laughs> and then that. And it's been a while since I read it too, so I'm I'm remembering things all of a sudden. Like, oh right, that's that happened. Yeah, I gotta tell you, when rereading the series, all sorts of feelings just came pouring into me all over again. It's just it's such a beautifully crafted story, and there is so much to talk about. But I think we've gone on a little bit on time here, so we will dovetail it towards the conclusion. But there are a few things that I do want to address. Uh, one thing I want to bring up because it was important to me is that I really appreciated Misha as a character because oh, yeah. yes. it's so rare that you see like Indian characters in anime and manga series. But more than that, so often when Indian characters are depicted in other media, they are really baggage with stereotypes that, you know, are like everything about the character is rooted in the fact that they are foreign and about these ideas about what it's like to be an Indian. And, you know, as a, as a kid, I loved, you know, characters like Apu, you know, the scant representation of Indians that we had, you know, in whatever media that there was. But, you know, the, those characters came with their the fact that, oh, they, they came with stereotypes and, like, this idea of, you know, Indianness. But Nisha is just allowed to be a character, and there isn't any, you know, stereotypes 
attached to her. And not only is she allowed to be a character, she is allowed to be one of the most capable and smartest and wittiest characters in the series. I love her so much. Like, she feels like people that I know personally. And she, you know, she wears saris and stuff. But, she like, her, her character is defined by her knowledge of, like, how well she knows the clothing industry and how smart and how smart she is and able to give advice to Korinosuke and the rest of the group about like best practices and like like how they should run a business she's just a really capable and smart businesswoman and I and she's also just incredibly hilarious with her sarcastic wit and her Osakan accent yeah I love that they they, they went for the Osakan accent too like they were like oh you have an accent but it's not gonna be an Indian accent like we're gonna be like, you know like we're gonna we're gonna be really absurd here yeah I really appreciate Agashimura for including her as a character and it's because you know not only is Indian representation in a media outside of India so scant and you know so baggage and stereotypes but like Indian women aren't, you know, usually given such a proactive role or prominent enough in other media as well. So, like, for Nisha to have such a prominent role in Princess Jellyfish and, like, for her to have such, a, like, a strong character to be, like, one of the smartest and funniest characters in the series was really meaningful for me. And I really, really appreciated that. Yeah. I wish she was in the anime. Yes, I, I wish. Yeah, you know, I want a Princess Jellyfish remake so they can cover the whole story because I want to see yeah. the entire story. I want to see this Nisha, all of Nisha's moments, but I also want to see that entire last third of the series with Kai and the Signabore arc because that, I mean, that is, I think, maybe my favorite part of the series because that's where like all the themes come together in such a beautiful way. Yeah, I I personally thought that's where the story like got the most interesting. Definitely, um, not not that I didn't enjoy anything before then, but it it really, I like like you said it, that that's really where it felt like everything just kind of came to a head, and you really kind of started to understand where the story was going. Yeah, yeah. My my husband and I watched the anime together, and he's only seen the anime. And every now and then, I just turn to him like, "There's so much more. Yeah, there really There's is. so much you haven't, you don't know about." <laughs> like. It's a shame they ended the anime the way they did because they ended the anime with Diego's mom saying that she's not selling out a musicon, which you know, kind of prevented the fact from making direct sequels continuation to that first anime adaptation. So they'd have to start from the scratch if they were to do it again. Yeah, I feel like feel like never say never. We 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 could pro we could probably get a reboot one day. Princess Jellyfish has had a lot of adaptations. It had a live action film adaptation. It's had a live action drama, and I hopefully like if they do make an anime adaptation, they'll have Nisha played by an Indian actress because we talked about this on the show. But in that TV drama, they had Nisha played by a Japanese actress, like in basically Indian face. So that was not good. I was really disappointed when I heard that. Oh no! Oh no! Yeah, that's not a good oh, look. I didn't know that. Especially Oof. since the movie apparently had Nisha be played by an Indian actress. So it's so disappointing that the TV drama didn't go that now. Oh, that's really disappointing. Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that. I'm so like traumatized now. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. But we've lavished a lot of 
praise on Prince of Jellyfish that I, I do want to bring up a few, just briefly, some points that I of the story that I was not as happy with this time around. And this mainly, I think, has to do with the Inari subplot. Or Inari as a character, I think, is the one I'm most disappointed in. Because I think she it falls into the most harmful stereotypes of any character in the series. Like that as like, this businesswoman who will like sleep around to get ahead. Which I think is a really a really kind of harmful stereotype, but also I think that her relationship with Shu has a lot of problem areas because not only does she basically like molest him and blackmail him with like pictures of them sleeping together and like tricking and like kind of like manipulating him into thinking that they slept together. Like not only is like she you know being abusive in that way, but also later when she, like she pretends to be uh, overdose on pills and stuff. Like, Shu slaps her and, like, punches her a lot. And that's physical assault. Uh, I've, and I feel like for her character, what, it would have made sense if she exploited him for that. You know, if she, like, yeah. used that against him. But it, that's not the direction the story goes. Instead, like, that becomes, like, a moment of infatuation where she falls in love with him. And I was just not comfortable with like that a romanticist romanticization of like abusive action, like that is yeah, that is kind of weird. That is a man is the romanticization of physical assault and like her like she when she thinks about that moment and she starts blushing later on and she that's like that's the moment where she like starts to fall in love with you and I just was not comfortable with that at all. And like, if they explored it in, if Akashimura had explored it in a way that kind of psychologically like got to the heart of like, why that would be something that would make her feel attracted to Shu in an interesting and also uh, responsible way, that would have been one thing. But that's not where the plot goes. Like, Inari's a character, like, after... She basically kind of falls to the wayside as an antagonist. Like, as the series goes on, and the relationship with Shu is kind of just, like, you know, very uh, abruptly stopped as a subplot, as it focuses more on Shu and Tsukimi becoming closer. And then, you know, it just does not resolve itself in a satisfying way. And so I, I was... I didn't think that that was the one major thing in Princess Jellyfish. I think Higashimura didn't handle well and handled in a way that I thought was very felt uncomfortable and irresponsible. And and hopefully will, would be something that she'd improve on in uh, her other works. Yeah, I agree. I honestly forget about Inari, which I think means that she's kind of unnecessary. She She's kind of a means to an end. I want to like yeah. her as a character. And there are things I like about her. Like she is good at her job, even if she uses questionable practices to do it. And she is fighting against, you know, a sexist system. Like her boss is making moves on her. So she is staying like strong in the face of like being the shitty company and stuff. So I want to sympathize her, sympathize with her, like understand where she's coming from as a character. But I think out of all the characters, Princess Jellyfish, she's the one that Higashimura does. Uh, Higashimura doesn't let us get into her head enough and doesn't like let us explore her motivations enough. And I think that does a disservice to her as a character. I think that having such a breadth of diversity of women makes me feel a little bit more okay with her being the way she is. Um, but I agree. I don't think she... I think she could be a very interesting and complex character. 
Uh, and I, and I think that at some point, yeah, she was kind of a means to an end. Like she didn't really come full circle. We didn't really get a, a satisfying conclusion with her or, or really understand what's going on with her. Yeah, like mentally and emotionally. My my guess as to why she started becoming attracted to Shu at that point is because he kind of um, stood his ground. Yeah. And I think that not, that hadn't happened to her before. And I think that's kind of the, you know, like the men that she manipulates don't usually come back and say, no, you can't do this to me anymore. I agree. I don't think it was handled well. I don't think that it's obvious that that's what is happening. If he had just yelled at her to say, stop it, don't toy with my feelings like that, that would have been something that I could get behind. But like, he slaps her and then punches her several times. And it's played as a comedic slapstick bit. Like the punches part, the 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 slap is dramatic. And then the, uh, there's a panel of him like punching her, which is like played as a joke with slapstick comedy. But like, it's that's physical assault. And Princess Jellyfish is like such a grounded series for the most part that moments of physical violence like that like feel uncomfortable because you consider it in a real world setting more than you would in like a Rumiko Takahashi series where like characters are more crazy and it's right. more fantastical and stuff it it would have been one thing for like a slap just for like dramatic effect I I think personally I I would have I could have maybe overlooked that but like yeah everything else after that is pretty unnecessary Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I can totally understand kind of having that physical reaction immediately upon realizing that you've been duped by someone and you thought they were going to die, right? And like you're so frustrated that you just hit them. I can understand like that, but then you follow that with you terrified me. Like you you know like why would you do that? I'm so, I'm sorry that I hit you, but like you know because I could see that happening in real life too. Like you just like it's like a a, a conditioned response, right? You just you're so like shocked um that you need to act out but yeah i i I agree i was also i I had kind of forgotten like i said it's been a while since i read it but i had forgotten about that i yeah i had i didn't like that part either i think it also made me um kind of feel like shu it made me like him less um and it made me kind of see the ways in which he's coded as a um a symbol of a kind of traditional patriarchal japanese society because i do think that there's still a certain amount of um i mean this is again i i don't know for sure but um you know it's not like this is the first time i've seen hitting in a manga you know hitting women um and i don't think it's usually with a lot of criticism uh, i think it's usually just kind of it just happens like somebody gets hit sometimes and uh, I wonder if that's uh, an issue in Japan. I don't know what domestic violence is like in Japan or how it's talked about. My guess is not a lot because I think that there are a lot of social issues that don't get really dealt with, at least not publicly uh, in Japan, because it's all about we've got to kind of conform and keep peace. And, and I understand that desire. So I wonder if some of that is just kind of, you know, shoes as the symbol of the next generation of this patriarchal society um but it definitely did not make me feel good about him as a character and as soon as he did that i was like he cannot marry tsukimi <laughs> like i'm i'm not okay with that like i was already not into it but i was really like are you kidding you would just do that to somebody you would just hit them you know and somebody and somebody you don't really even know that well right it's not like they like i don't know not that you should hit people you know well but at least like if you hit somebody you know well there's like a whole lot of stuff going on i don't know i don't know 
Yeah, I, I can't. I don't think physical violence can be condoned in any yeah, it's, case. It's, but it's, it's not necessarily justifiable, but it'd be it'd be more understandable. I it, guess it'd be more understandable for sure. Uh, I mean, I still overall enjoy Shu as a character and what he represents. I definitely agree with you, Morgana, that he's like this representation of like the of like these old value beliefs and patriarchy being like perpetuated and he uh, in the next generation and then throughout the course of the series he is where he takes a long time but he does after Sikimi rejects him kind of ultimately realize that he does not have to follow in these as well and that he does not have to follow in the path that his father has laid out for him and the rules and groundwork he's laid out in the same way Koronosuke hasn't so I do appreciate his development, but like th- that moment, definitely. I I wish there had been some consequences for him. I wish you know Inari as a character had reacted to it in a different way. Yeah, either consequences for him or a, like a real apology. You know, like a real like you know what I did was really out of line, and I mean like what you did was also really out of line. But like yeah, like a dramatic apology, like a really serious scene. Like it, it's hand it's hand waved and a comedic. You know, kind of a meeting panel where they're awkward against each other. You think, oh, I'm sorry for hitting you. And then she's like, Anari is being like awkward because she's being flustered because she has crush on Like, I wish it had been more of a dramatic, serious moment of like apology than what Agashimura did it put in. I'm kind of surprised with Shu being the way he is. He didn't just immediately apologize right after hitting her, even if he was upset. Yeah, it just seems kind of it just seems kind of out of character for him. Almost, Shu is such a polite person normally, and also and generally a considerate person. So that is it's a really out of character moment for him. I definitely agree. It, it was very out of character, and again, that that kind of made me again wonder. Okay, how is he then with? you know, with his relationships with women, because he doesn't really, you don't really see him interacting with his mom a whole lot. You kind of see him interacting with Kuranosuke's mom and with Tsukimi, but you don't see him interacting with his own mother very much. And it just made me wonder, like, when you are close with someone and, like, he thinks that he slept with Inari, right? So when you're close with someone like that, when you've been intimate with someone, does that make you feel like you can treat them any way that you want like how does that you know and is that again the kind of the the public face of the japanese man and then like the private face of the japanese is that was that supposed to symbolize and if so i can buy that symbolism but i just it it wasn't clear yeah Uh, yeah i mean I don't know. I'm. Th- th- this isn't me trying to be like, oh well, shoot, did nothing wrong. But I, I really, I really want to believe with what we're presented that hopefully that was just like a, like a, like a one-time thing. Like, yeah, I think that was definitely uncharacteristic of Shu. He does, yeah, because from what his character had presented as before and then after, he never does something like that again. And he seems to have a healthy relationship with Lena. Like he's her main point of contact in finding out like what's going on with Kuranosuke and stuff. And apparently he's had conversations with her and like kept her up to date. And that's an interesting relationship, actually. You know, like having a relationship with your father's mistress long after she's gone because, you know, she's your brother's mother. You know, that, that's a really interesting relationship. And he does treat her very well and is very kind and very careful about his contact with her. And so, yeah, I think he is a very considerate person. So, yeah, so that whole scene was, I don't know. 
I, I had forgotten about it and now I'm mad about it in retrospect. It's just so out of character that like hopefully we can just kind of chalk it up to him just overreacting and him uh, again it, it being just a one-time thing and not overly representative of his character at least i would i would hope so and from a meta perspective maybe higashimura had an idea with that that she originally wanted to do that just ultimately didn't pan out as the story shifted in different directions yeah that's possible too it really felt like higashimura just didn't really have much else for uh inari to do after her role was done yeah yeah which kind of surprised me. I thought that she would kind of have a, a redemption arc sort of thing. I was I was kind of banking on that. Like that she'd be like, I've done t- terrible things to people in the name of business and I would like to make amends and I would like to like really explore having an honest relationship with somebody. Like I was really I really thought that would happen. Yeah, I I wish it would have happened. I'm kind of fine with her leaving the story at one point. I I never really like I don't, personally, I never really found her that interesting, so... No, I didn't either, but I, I guess I expected that to happen, yeah. because yeah. It, it, seemed to, it seemed to set it itself up that way. Especially since Higashimura gives so much attention and empathy for other characters in the series, who have, like, arcs that ultimately culminate in growth, like... Hinari was like a prominent character in the early manga, so you would expect that she'd also have a fully realized character arc and grow as a person like, you know, other major characters. At the very least, I'm glad that the manga did not like push Shu Inari like the anime did in its conclusion. Where like they're on the plane together and it's like, oh, maybe they'll get together. Yeah, no, I, I think I don't. I think that's ultimately a doomed relationship. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I'm not sure Shu is ready for for relationships with women. I feel like he's got to do some work. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's a nice boy, but I think he needs some time. Yep. But I think that about covers our discussion of Princess Jellyfish. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about the series with us, Morgana. Thank you for having me. I had a really great time. I uh, I obviously enjoy talking about Higashimura's work. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm I'm so happy that finally we were able to devote an episode in Princess Jellyfish and talk about it as well. And it's so nice to talk about the things you love with other people who love them. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to put you down for a Tokyo Tire Rebel Girls episode at some point. Please do. I feel like I could talk about it forever. I won't stop. I, I mean, like, on the Manga Machinations podcast, I wouldn't stop talking about it. I've written a post about it. I just, every, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down. Anytime anybody wants to talk to me about Tokyo Tarareva Girls, I am ready. Mm-hmm. And where can our listeners go to read more of your thoughts on Tokyo Tarareva Girls and follow what you're doing on social media? Yeah, so I um I run the website, uh, mangamaven.com, um, and that's where I put a lot of my writing and my thoughts. Uh, otherwise, I'm on Twitter, at Morgana, M-O-R-G-A-N-A, Relina, R-H-A-L-I-N-A. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, yeah, that's where I'm at. And otherwise, you can come visit me at Comicopia, you know, at, at, in Boston or in Kenmore Square. Uh, or at Anime Boston at our at our booth. That seems to be like the best place. I think the most populous place that we we're located. So, yeah, definitely go follow Morgana on Twitter, visit her blog, and pay her a stop by at Comicopia. 
Yeah, tell 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 her that the manga Mavericks sent you. Yeah, <laughs> please do. I would love to to tell these guys that you uh so you've listened to them, you've listened to their their profound advice. <laughs> and if you haven't read or bought Princess Jellyfish yet, please do at Comicopia. Yes, that'd be great. We definitely have it in stock. I absolutely make sure we have it in stock. <laughs> there you go. No excuses, guys. Head on out there. <laughs> All right, uh, that is going to wrap us up for that. Again, very special thanks to Morgana for coming on, talk to us about uh, being a manga retailer, and also talk about Princess Jellyfish. Uh, again, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Um, but uh, let, let's let's finally get to what everybody's been waiting for. Let's let, let's reveal the results of the poll. Yeah, the poll to decide which third shoujo manga series decided by our listeners will cover this year. We had to do a runoff poll because there was a six-way tie. And finally, we will reveal to you the winner. And it's quite interesting because four of those series had votes along a similar percentage. They either had seven or eight votes. And those series were Kimi Nijin Okay, Chokitaro Rebel Girls, Natsume's Book of Friends, and Revolutionary Girl Utena. Each of those series had about 10% or 11% of the votes. And really, it was a competition between Yona the Dawn and Descending Stories for the top. And it was a very narrow, close race. But ultimately, by one vote, Yona the Dawn edged out Descending Stories to be the third Fan voted Shoujo Manga Choice. We will cover on Manga Merits this year, folks. Congratulations to Yona the Dawn fans. They really came through for their series, even though Colton was a biased <laughs> uh, host who influenced people to vote for the standing stories. In spite of that, Yona the Dawn fans came through for their series, and we will cover it on the show this year. But I also want to thank everyone who participated in this poll because we actually had more votes than in our survey. We had 44 participants in our survey and we had 71 participants in this poll to decide the final Shoujo manga we'll cover this year. So I want to thank everyone who participated in this. And yeah, I'm looking forward to covering Yona the Dawn later this year. Man, it's really interesting because uh, when the poll started off, like in the first like day or two, um, not a lot of people were voting for Yona of the Dawn. But I guess, uh, I guess someone had the call to action. Uh, uh, you Yona of the Dawn fans just got together <laughs> and overtook the poll. <laughs> they really did. I don't know if there was a coordinated effort, but. I think it's just that Yona Don has a passionate fan base. A lot of people are fans. A lot of people want to see us talk about it. But just as many people wanted us to discuss Descending Stories. Again, Yona Don only edged out Descending Stories by one vote. And it was a close race for a while. Descending Stories was in the lead for quite a bit before Yona Don caught up and superseded it. So it was a close race. I think it's safe to say that, like... You know, just because Yona of the Dawn won, and we will be covering that, uh, we will be covering that at some point in the show this year. That uh, you know, that 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 doesn't mean that we won't be covering any of the other uh titles on the on the list. Uh, we'll just get I mean, to yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, we'll definitely get to and hopefully all of these at some point. Um, I'm I'm still gunning for a Descending Stories episode. If if not this year, then definitely next year. Yeah. Especially since now, now I think at the like, uh, 
I don't remember when. I know I know all the manga is out at this point, so... Last December, Kodansha USA put out the final volume, so it's all out there, all waiting for us to read and discuss on the show. And hopefully we will get around to it, either this year or next. Uh, but, but for now, we're going to focus on uh, uh, Yona of the Dawn, as well as... Uh, what, what were our other two winners? I, I forget off the top of my head. Banana Fist and Chihafuru. That's right, that's right. Uh, yeah, Banana Fish and Chihayafu, I'm definitely looking forward to checking out. Uh, at the time of this recording, I'm hopefully going to start reading uh, Banana Fish soon. So, uh, I'm going to be getting into that. Uh, but, uh, but until then, uh, yeah, uh, lo- look forward to our next episode because, uh, we're actually going to be covering another shoujo manga that, uh, that, you know, we did, didn't necessarily decide through our poll, but it was one that we both love so much that, uh, we decided to cover it during february kind of in time for valentine's day but that timing didn't really work out but it's we still we're still going to record about it anyway it'll be in time for white day oh yeah that's right i guess that's true um and yeah i think it's safe to say that uh you guys should tune in next episode because we are going to be talking about my love story Yep, My Love Story by Kazune Kawahara and Aruko. We'll be discussing the series with another great guest, Ashley McDonald, host of Shoujo and Tell, a great shoujo manga-focused podcast. I'm really excited to discuss the series with her, and I've really enjoyed reading through the entirety of the manga for the first time, and I definitely am looking forward to our discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've still got about four or five volumes left, but uh, th- thankfully I've been able to get through the series pretty quickly. It's a pretty quick read uh, so far. Really? So Yeah, I've I've been able to get through them pretty quickly, actually, but uh, that's just me. Um, but no, I'll, I'll definitely be done in time uh, to record the episodes, and you guys will get to listen to it. And uh, yeah, I, I think that about covers everything for this episode in particular. Um, Except for community shout outs and on the subject of prince's jellyfish well first of all i want to once again direct you to morgana's website manga maven her blog where she posts updates on how she's doing and top pieces on manga and her perspective on comics it's always a very compelling read i always enjoy reading her stuff and also follow her on twitter just to keep tabs on all her other manga writing projects and writing projects in general. But also on the subject of Princess Jellyfish and Shoujo and Tell, Shoujo and Tell did a two-part Princess Jellyfish podcast with Carrie McLean from Black Nerd Problems, which is a really great inter-discussion of the series as well, and they go over a lot of the stuff we discuss in this episode, but other topics as well that we didn't including, uh, and they have different perspectives of some of the things we discussed, like why Sukumi shouldn't have gotten together with you, and stuff like that. And also why Kurnoski is the best, and all sorts of topics. So, if you want another fun uh, discussion on Princess Jellyfish, definitely te- check that out, and check out Shoujo Intel in general. For additional insight on Princess Jellyfish, you can also read a uh, interview with the editor of the manga, Yuki Sukemuno, uh, Yuki Sukemune, that was done by Bridget Alverson for Barnes and Nobles back in 2017, which provides some interesting insight on the background of Princess Jellyfish and kind of some of the things that influenced its creation and what makes it so special. 
And it's definitely a very great read to enrich your knowledge of Princess Jellyfish. And then finally, not related to Princess Jellyfish, but something that I read today and I was very excited for and want to share, is a piece on Anime Feminist by Dee, who wrote about a Team Rocket, which I, I've been looking forward for to Dee writing about Team Rocket for months now, ever since the Pokemon uh, Twitch Marathon, and she wrote about the Pokemon Chronicle episodes trading days and how it's an interesting uh, subversion of normal, of like gendered archetypes and tropes that normally come with this solo, uh, uh, solo go-getter protagonist who has to learn to work with a team and how usually this is a story that's focused on a male protagonist uh, but in this case, the episode is focused on Jesse. And what's great about the episode is that it's not a story that follows in the cliche of, oh, this, uh, fe- this female character needs to learn how to work as a team because she can't do everything alone. It's a subversion of that because Jesse can do everything alone. Jesse is competent and capable. But through the support of James and Meow, she realizes even though she can do things alone, she doesn't have to. And it's good to work together in a team. So it has much healthier messages and it's just a great showcase of Team Rock what's a great endearing team dynamic that Team Rocket has and how they twist gender archetypes and stereotypes and what makes them so special as characters and enduring for so many years and why this episode is a great encapsulation of what makes them great and I thought Dee wrote just an amazing piece on the on this episode and on them as characters, and I definitely want to share that for all you Pokemon Team Rock fans. And that does it for me for community shoutouts this week. All right, uh, I probably don't have anything nearly as interesting. Uh, you know, I just wanted to uh, point your guys' way to uh, to a video. I I like to usually watch in the background. Uh, because it is, it's sort of a compilation of different Shonen Jump openings, and you, know, you might be asking yourself, well, why is that interesting? Well, uh, it is actually a video. It's it's basically a collection of different Shonen Jump openings, like in, in in chronological order of like when their manga was released, and it's entitled "The Evolution of Weekly Shonen Jump by Anime Openings." I like watching the video every once in a while. Like I said, I I kind of like listening to it in the background as sort of like a medley of Shonen Jump openings that I like to listen to. Uh, but in general, it's just really interesting to see uh, how far Shonen Jump anime has come, you know, from the days of uh, Otoko Ipiki to like, you know, Black Clover and everything, just to see the different eras of Shonen Jump uh, demonstrated and collected. Um uh, this particular user also has uh, same video compilations for uh, Weekly Shonen Magazine anime adaptations and Weekly Shonen Sunday anime adaptations. So uh, for the people who like listening to us talk about Shonen Sunday, uh, there you go. Uh, I'll definitely leave uh, links to v- these videos in the show notes for the episode. But uh, yeah, again, uh, I just thought they were really interesting videos that I, I like revisiting uh, every now and again. So definitely check them out if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to watching through those. And yeah, I think I think that's gonna about do it for the show. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And I guess uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramiyasha on Twitter. 
and Animation Revolution, Annie List, wherever there's a Lumramiyasha, that's where you can find me. And you can read my reviews over at all-comic.com. Like the up and writing reviews for anime films. I also write still occasional manga reviews. But lately, I got some reviews up for Hunter x Hunter, The Last Mission, and I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. I definitely had very polar opposite reactions to those films. So definitely check those out and give them a read. Yeah, um, really interesting at movies episode, by the way, about Hunter Hunter, the last mission. Uh, I thought it was a really, uh, I thought it was a really engaging listen as somebody who hasn't seen that movie, uh, in a long time and totally didn't remember <laughs> anything about it. Uh, and it's, it's weird. Um, it almost makes me want to watch the movie again because I don't Ugh. remember, I don't remember <laughs> like any of the plot of that movie. And it's kind of wild that I forgot about all that shit that happened. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I mean, if you if you don't want to see the movie, um, at least listen to the at movies episode about it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it's shorter, and I promise you, it's far more entertaining than the experience <laughs> of actually sitting through that damn movie. <laughs> huh. And I guess as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at sniperking three two three, as well as my other podcasts I host, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast. Uh, though it's on an indefinite hiatus at the moment. Uh, we still have a huge backlog of episodes you can listen to over at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. So, you know, if you're, if you're a fan of Gintama, uh, go listen to that show. Uh, or if you're a fan of Detective Conan or Case Closed, whatever you want to call it, uh, please go listen to One Podcast Prevails at onepodcastprevails.com. It's a show that I record with uh, my friend, Doctor, over from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast. I really enjoy recording it, and like I'm a huge fan of Conan, so you know, if you are too, uh, please go check it out. Uh, but as for just all comic and the podcast in general, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks and at movies over at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. Uh, you can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. Uh, but if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, uh, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on mangamavericks.tubler.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we post uh, different excerpts of the podcast, such as different news pieces we talk about, uh, whatever manga we decide to talk about and review, uh, or even some exclusive content every once in a while. So definitely go subscribe to our channel there. Um, if you want to support the show, uh, we've kind of mentioned it here and there every once in a while. Uh, but uh, you know, if you if you if you like the show and you want us and you want to support us uh, in any way, shape, or form, uh, why you can uh, always donate uh, a Kofi over at our Kofi pages. Uh, it's basically like three bucks or something. You know, just you know, uh, like I, I mentioned on the show all the time about how you know I don't have a nearly complete enough library like uh, Lum and Vlor do, unfortunately. So I end up buying a lot of the manga that we review on the show. Uh, in order to, you know, uh, support the medium that I really enjoy, you know, or just, you know, basically, if you just want to uh, send us a little tip uh, for all the work we put into the podcast, uh, you know, you could find my Kofi page over at Kofi.com slash Colton. Or if you want to send one over to Lum, you can uh, find his Kofi page at uh, Kofi.com slash Ramayasha. Uh, basically, any money we get from that, we're going to always put back into Manga Mavericks, uh, you know, whatever we need for the show, uh, just in general. Uh, so if you want to support us in any way, shape, or form, you have an option to do so, and we appreciate it. But I guess, uh, moving on from that, uh, you can email us anything 
uh, over at uh, mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, you know, uh, what do you think about Princess Jellyfish? Uh, you know, what do you think about uh, Morgana and what she has to say about uh, being a manga retailer? Um, you know, you can email us anything about those sort of topics or just manga in general, and uh, we will read them on the show. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that really helps the visibility of our show and just helps our podcast just kind of get out there in general. Uh, so uh, go ahead and do that if you have the time. You know, we would really appreciate it if you do so. Uh, but I think that's going to be about it for the show. This has been episode 77 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 78. Bye, guys. Sayonara! Sayonara!